Hey everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Hey, you ever have those conversations that you think are going to go in one particular direction and then frrrp, they just seem to do a 180 Mobius strip backwards, upside down, rinse cycle spin. Well, the first call with uh, what started out as a woman and then ended up being a couple was just such a conversation. I think you'll find it very interesting. It started off with, what do you think of a 28-year age gap? between husband and wife, and then where it went, my friends, was quite a ride. I think you'll find it very interesting, and I hope you'll listen to it very carefully. The second caller works at an Ivy League school and is nervous and scared because there's such a claustrophobia of political correctness in the institution that he's nervous even to open his mouth about approximately 98% of what he believes, and what what is my advice to someone in that kind of situation? The Third caller, oh, UPB, love it, universally preferable behavior. So UPB generally defines thou shalt not, like don't kill, don't rape, don't steal, don't murder. What does it have to say? What does UPB have to say about positive moral action, courage and honesty and so on, integrity? And it's a great question, very, very important. I've had a good conversation about that. The fourth caller, okay, this was a really good self-knowledge call. It started off with a caller saying that he had revelations about reincarnation, but we really got in deep to how I believe identity and the self operates and how much self-work is necessary to help the world in any consistent or productive manner. And the fifth caller, back a little bit to UPB, which is a well I don't mind at all going back to drink from, but isn't universal preference just a preference? Why should I follow morality? Why should I be good? It's a great and fundamental question. It was a great conversation about that. So thanks, of course, everyone. I hope you enjoy the show. Remember, the show is not free. Repeat after me. The show is not free. Please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Most, most important for you to do so for us and for you. Your ideals will follow your actions. What you commit to, you will begin to really live. freedomainradio.com slash donate. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And the Amazon affiliate link is available to you at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. All right. Up first today, we have Rania. She wrote in and said, why is it considered a bad idea to be in an age gap relationship? Almost everywhere in the world, this is the case. And if someone is already in a successful one, what advice do you give them in a philosophical level to ignore the haters and live happily ever after? That's from Rania. Oh, hi, Rania. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Stefan. I'm doing so great. Good. I'm so proud to be with you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You know, can I tell you, I have a little bit of a weakness. Weakness? I actually got to indulge it today. But my, my weakness is gossip. Now, I know that your relationship is not gossip. It's your, it's your marriage, and it's very, very important. But I do like people's personal lives and people's personal stories. So I appreciate you calling in about this uh, this question. So do you mind if I could ask a couple of questions to sort of get the lay of the land first? I'm open for that. Right. And what's the age gap we're talking about here? 28. I'm younger. 28 years. Yeah. You have out Macron. Macron. <laughs> so. I know. <laughs> I hope he didn't meet you while you were. Okay. So 28 years. Um, is he wealthy? Uh, no, he's just working and he's a middle class. I mean, he has no properties, even his flat. We are paying for it monthly. Right. 
Yeah. And do you work in the marriage? At the moment, I'm still young. I study. You study, okay. So he's paying the bills for you studying, right? Uh, Well, no, I pay for them. I mean, my mother and my father pay for me also somehow, personally. So, no, he's just paying for living and for me being with him, but uh, not a big deal. No, he's not paying for my studies because we live in Germany, so it's not so much money to study. It's close to free, right? Uh, yeah, close. I mean, 300 uh, euros per semester for six months, so it's almost nothing. Yeah. So so he's basically paying the bills while you're going to school. I'm not meaning this in any critical way. I'm just sort of trying to get an understanding of things. Of course, he's taking care of me how I live because I'm his wife. I mean, what to eat. But it, when it comes to paying for studies, no, he's not paying for my studies. No. Right. And... Do you want to have kids? Yep, we plan to have kids. Uh, we want to have. I want to have three. It's fine. It it doesn't matter. But for me, I want to have three. But he's open for children. He loves to have that. You want three kids? Yep. Um, just out of but curiosity, roughly how old is he going to be if you end up with three kids? Now, sorry, but just before that, how much further do you have to go in school? Uh, maybe for another five years. I mean, because I just. Planning everything from you, I have to start studying from zero. So wait, you have five more years of school to go? Not school, it's university. Uh, sorry, that, that's what I mean. So five years of university. And what are you studying? So I will study maybe English. Also, uh, so I'm studying now something German, but it seems somehow too hard for me. I thought I will, I will make it, but... So I'm someone who loves literature, loves languages but i will change next semester to english so i will i think i can make it so something in literature something that i don't know if it has a future or not who knows but i'm someone who has passion never give up and loves what he's doing so i'm someone who trusts himself and in this field so but Rania, i think just sorry just out of curiosity you said you wanted three kids right well not exactly i mean i just want to have Three kids in the term of 10 years or something. So it's no, not no, I really... understand that. I understand that. So why why would you want to go to university for five years now if you want to have three kids soon? Uh, well, I don't want to have three kids soon. I just want to have one kid now. But it's for me, if I stay at home and have no uh, academic studies, so it's for me, it's like <laughs> you have not done nothing with your life. So what I mean you've done nothing with your life? You're raising three children. I don't understand why. I mean, look, you could you you could be entirely right. I'm just from my standpoint. I don't know, maybe as a taxpayer, but but why why do you want to go to college if then you're basically going to spend? I assume you know. And if you listen to this show, right, home breastfeeding, having other kids, and so on, you're going to be out of the workforce for like. Uh, 10 years or so and so why do all this education and then stay home and have kids i'm not sure i quite understand the reasoning (laughs) and plus how old is this dude gonna be when if you want to have three kids starting in five years i mean i don't need to know exactly how old you are but assuming you're say legal like i'm not speaking to anthony Weiner in a voice (laughs) encoder like he's he's got to be in his 50s so plus five years for you to finish university, that's mid to late 50s, then three kids, maybe two years apart. I mean, the guy's 
the guy's going to have some pretty slow tadpoles. Y- y- you know what I mean? Well, we are planning to have a child soon, so uh, it's fishing these five years. So. Oh, so are you going to have your first child while you're still in university? Exactly, yeah. We're planning to do that. But why would you want to combine the two? I don't quite, I mean, don't you want to be home with your baby? I want to be home with my baby, but the problem is I don't want to give up uh, an academic degree. This is so important for me personally. I mean, I could be at home. I have no financially problems. I have a wonderful husband, wonderful home. But for me personally, I cannot just keep academia. I have to do something with it at least. Yeah. But why? Because I have bigger dreams. I, I, I love literature since I was a no, child. No, but you, I mean, nobody's yeah. saying you can't read books, right? I mean, nobody's, if you love literature, then you can read all the literature you want. You can have a book club. You can read to your kids. You can do do lot. You can do online courses. You can, you know, but I'm just not sure I quite understand it. You know, maybe I'm crazy here. I just don't quite understand why you'd want to have kids while in university why not do university later um i don't know i mean it could be something that i can just wait for it one two years that the child is a little bit older so i don't know what will happen but i just want to be wait wait. what do you mean you don't know what will happen what is that i don't know what that means it means that for example when i have a child i have to make a pause you know six months that the child has to be with his mother, so I cannot go to university. So university accepted that a woman has to stay at home. They have no problem with it. You will not be kicked out of university or something like that. So it can but, be... But hang on. Who's going to take... Let, let's say that you, you're you going to have to do some... I mean, German universities are, are tough, right? Because they're free. They have to have very high standards and, you know, good for you for getting in. But it's going to be a lot of work. And particularly, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm getting going out on a limb here and your English is fantastic, but it's not your native language. So it's going to be a challenge. So your, your husband works, he's, he's middle class. So, so Rania, who's going to take care of your child while you're doing your, uh, your university degree? Uh, daycare, that we pay for. <laughs> you're going to put them in daycare? I don't know. I mean, we have to do... Well, what do you mean you don't I'm... know? <laughs> this is the point of planning. <laughs> Husband that can he can take six months or at least till up three years. Oh, your husband! So your husband is going to stay home and take care of your child, so that you can go to university. He does not have to. No, but does he want to? Uh, for six months it's fine, but more than that, I don't think so. So you've talked about it with him, and he's like, "Sure, I'm happy to take time off from my career for six months, so that you can go to school, and I can help raise your child or our child." Yeah, for six months it's fine, but more than that, I don't think so. <laughs> now, um, the the breastfeeding recommendations are eighteen months, ideally, definitely a year. So, are you going to try breastfeeding while you're in university? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and where where are you from originally, Rania? I'm from Algeria, as well. so North Africa. North Africa, Algeria. What? You couldn't couldn't make it to France? No, I'm just kidding. Um, and how long have you been? Uh, I think you're in Germany, right? So, how long have you been in Germany? Three years now. And how did you get to Germany? Uh, did you was it immigration or your parents or how did you end up in Germany? Marrying him. And how did you meet? 
Well, we met over Facebook uh, because we are both atheists. So the theme that we met over was atheism. So we had a friend that was an atheist. It was a famous writer, a philosopher, and so on. So over him, we met each other as friends and so on. But it developed more than that. So, yeah. Right. Um, if you were a German taxpayer, what would you think of you? I mean, in terms of coming to the country, going into university, which the taxpayer uh, pays for, and then uh, I'm just just curious. I mean, do you think that would be a net positive for the German taxpayer, or not so much? Well, I think in the same situation that we are living in right now. So I'm very young. I'm like his daughter in his age of his daughter, and so on. So I would think that it's fine for him because he just lived in single since 15 years now. He was divorced and. So it makes no problem. He does not see that he's paying for me or anything else. And also my parents are paying for me, so it's not a big deal at all. And my parents also are intellect, so they are both uh, professors at university. So we met somehow on an intellectual level. It was not something like, oh, please take care of me. I'm running out of a horrible place. No, my family was very intellectual, very atheists. So it's a different situation. And I think as a payer of taxes, he has to think more of what's going on with uh, with the government that is taking care of, of a lot of refugees and between Brangit's refugees that I hate so much that it's horrible. I'm totally against Merkel and I was so, so upset that Le Pen did not win. So, so yeah, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your perception of what's going on in Germany with yeah. uh, the refugees. I mean, I, some of them certainly are coming from North Africa, and you'd certainly have more of an on-the-ground view of the people uh, who are coming into Germany. What do you think? Well, I was really shocked. I mean, like six months since I came in or something, and started this this shit with refugees, and they were coming on millions into the country and just storming in and... It was really horrible. And I was thinking, did I come here wrong? What the heck is going on in Europe? Why is this happening? Yeah. And everywhere I walk here in the cities, I see more people with, with hijab on, with scarves on. And I was thinking, I should really leave this continent very soon. It will be an Islamic country because I know what Islamics are. I come from such a place. I left because of that. And so what are your I concerns mean, about what's going to happen in Germany? You said uh, where it's going to head. Well, I think it will head to an Islamic country in, let's say, 20 years. I give them 20 years maximum. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, his, how many children does your husband have? He has one child. Oh, it's only one child. And you said it was he was divorced for 15 years. Was that when he met you or when he got married? No. He divorced... Uh, in 2002 or three, I think. And he met me in 2013 or 12. So it was a really long time after that. Right, and nothing right. to do. And what does his child think? I guess his adult child is, I guess, your age. Were you saying that she has some negative views of the relationship? Yeah. And what are they? What does she, what does she think? She's thinking that it's, 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 she feels that she has lost her father forever and she's just jealous of me uh, and her father made a younger woman, a prettier woman than her and so on. That's all. Right. That's right. her fault. Yeah. Well, um, 
the the issue is that when it comes to age gaps, particularly an age gap like this, I think a lot of people's question is, what do people have in common who have almost three decades difference? Now, you're a very intelligent woman. You've had, a, I would imagine, a challenging life and, and, and so on. And so if you're extraordinarily mature, then it sort of gets you some way towards where he is in terms of maturity. If he's not mature, then he is sort of closer to where you are in terms of your physical age. But when there's three decades between, nearly three decades between people, then I think people's concern is that it's a relationship based on looks, on on physicality, on, on sexuality, not necessarily on maturity and compatibility, because the question is, how much does someone in a woman or a man in her early 20s, how much do they have in common with somebody in his early 50s? You know, with three, uh, almost three decades difference, it's sort of hard to, it's hard for somebody to, to bridge that and wonder where the connection is in the relationship, if that makes sense. Uh, I totally understand it. <laughs> yeah. And I what's do. your response to that? My response to that is, I am a person that was born to a father that was very older than her and in an intellect uh, family. So I learned to be really mature than, than my age. I never ever in my life looked at people in my age and I thought they are the, the right person for me. I could have never ever made a reasonable, natural conversation, an intellect conversation with a, a guy in my age. That could have never ever been possible, no matter what culture he comes from. So you've sort of felt, uh, I guess, what some people called an old soul, or you felt older than your your physical years, um, and I would assume that has something to do with your intelligence, right? Yes, I think so, and also because the age gap between me and my father. And what is the age gap between you and your father? Forty-one. I'm sorry. Forty-one years old difference. <laughs> Forty-one. Well. <laughs> I'm one to talk, so I'm not going to, I have to brush past that one. Um, and you're saying that his his daughter is not really talking to her father because of you? Yeah, since our relationship, uh, she had problems with him and now they barely talk. Yeah. And, and it's because of his marriage to you? Yeah. <laughs> and what does she think the relationship is based on? I don't know. At first she was saying, I give this relationship six months and then six months pass and then another year and so on. So, I mean, I have to say that in any relationship in the world, you have to get to know this person. We had problems in the first six months that it will work or not, but we somehow, yeah, we got this working out. I mean, it worked at the end because we both understand each other. We both came to same level of 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 thoughts uh, in a lot of ways because somehow he was a liberal before he made me but he met me and then I introduced him to somehow the background I come from so he now understands what Islam is he read a lot of books about it because of me he was introduced to a lot of things because of me so he grown up I grown up we learned from each other we understand each other we, we are a very happy couple and a very successful couple I have to say just because you mentioned it again, and you mentioned that you were upset that Macron won rather than Le Pen, what is it that you would, I mean, we have a lot of French listeners, what is it you would like to say 
to the people of France about the decision that they've made? Well, I don't know what the fuck is going on in France, but I had a lot of hopes that Le Pen will win exactly like Trump did. But obviously, there are not so many so many people left in France to vote for her. Somehow, the only people who can vote there are Muslims, which are millions there. I mean, we know that at least 12 millions are from North Africa there, and the rest are whether females who are liberals or what the heck was the percentage of female French males who are left there. I think it's very, very small. So I maybe did not see that coming. So I was somehow, yeah, <laughs> I was an idiot. So I did not see it coming that he will win because there are not so many people who will vote for Le Pen. So there are not so many people who see the truth. People are... Yeah, it it already happened. So the immigration has already won in France. So that's what I mean. I'm really upset for France and I don't know what to say. I mean, it's horrible for Europe. It's coming everywhere in Sweden, in Germany. It's coming everywhere where they took a lot of migrants. It's a very, very sad story for the Western civilization in Europe. Very sad story. Hmm. Right. So... You mentioned earlier your looks. Uh, would you say that you're um, a pretty woman? Uh, I would say so. I'm at least an eight. <laughs> right, right. Do do you think that the daughter may be concerned that you know exotic beauty coming in from overseas and living to some degree off her father, going to school and so on? Do you think there may be a perception that she sees you as? I don't know if the phrase makes sense to you, a gold digger or somebody who's coming for citizenship and uh, and uh, money? Of course, I think so. And a lot of his friends also thought that at the beginning. But uh, the moment they met me and, and they have seen that I stayed with him and everything was fine, we are not some just people who are just trying it out. No, I'm someone who comes from a culture who believes the guy you marry, it's it. So... He did not believe that at the beginning. His friends didn't, his daughter, everyone didn't in this society. But I think I have led them into this belief that me personally, not just any woman from my country, but me personally, as an atheist, even though I'm an atheist, but I still have a lot of uh, background morality from my religion or from my society culture that uh, makes me... Uh, person who loves marriage, who value marriage, who value a future a stable relationship and a loving husband. Yeah. And what was the relationship between your husband and his daughter like before you came along? Were they getting along well? Did they have their issues or distance between them before? I think they had a good relationship, but after all this happened, I asked him, did you really have this deep relationship and it stopped because of me? So he said, uh, I don't think that I have so much a deep relationship with my daughter before. So he thought it was just fake or she was just being nice with him because of what he did for her. It's somehow the mentality in Europe. I don't get it anymore. So I don't know. <laughs> and where's the mom, her biological mom in the picture? Uh, she was eight years older than him. And... She's old and now with another guy since he divorced him. She was with this guy together. But is she around? Does she see her daughter? I mean, is she part of the... She's with a great relationship with her daughter since they divorced. And they have, had... you, have you met her or talked to her? What does she think of you as the, I guess, the second wife? 
No, she has no problem with me. She even invited us like a few weeks ago to come to her husband and her in house. So she has no problem with me at all. The ex-wife. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, with with regards to the daughter, I don't think. I mean, Rania, it can't be your problem to fix, right? I mean, it's it's his relationship with his daughter. He's obviously known her, and and was he he was fairly involved in raising her. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah I mean, so, both. I mean, yeah. I, I think you can facilitate them talking, but he is going to. You know, he is going to have to try and talk with her and try and figure out what the real issue is. I mean, I, I obviously can't can't possibly guess with any degree of accuracy. I mean, I could make some guesses, but what would that do? Not not much in particular. So, um, yeah, he's he's going to have to sit down with her and have her unpack her heart as to what her issue is with the relationship. Uh, if was her father not dating for a long time before he got involved with you? Well, if you want to ask him, he's right here, so he will tell you everything details. I okay. hope he will. Okay. So go ahead, Chuck. So really. Hello, hello. So I got the chance to talk to Stefan Molinet now. Now, I, now uh, there's I, someone who knows how to pronounce my last name. Let me tell you, that's a beautiful thing to hear. Yeah, yeah, I'm honored very much. Yeah, and thank you very much for this. Oh, my pleasure. So, so just for the records, uh, in Germany, it's now half past one. And uh, my wonderful wife woke me up. And uh, yes, uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah, what is the question? Oh, were you, um, did you have, with regards to your daughter, were you single for a long time before, before you met Rania? Yes, I was very, very long time single, and I was very, very fine with the situation. You know, uh, um, there is a saying here in Germany, if you can't live alone, it's the best thing you can have. If you don't, it's the worst on earth. Right. And uh, so I belonged to the first version, and I was very, very happy to live alone. I had um, for a long time no relationship I had some short relationships before Rania, but um, yeah, they were only very short time, and that was it. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible that you're since you didn't have a girlfriend and and you had divorced your wife? Is yeah. it possible that your daughter feels um, displaced? I mean, this is a very obvious thing to to. I'm sure you've thought of it. But uh, in my experience, single parents can sometimes end up in a quasi-spousal relationship with children. Now, I've known more single moms with single sons where they get yeah. kind of promoted to the man of the house. And there's this kind of spousal relationship that occurs between single parents and single children. I'm just wondering if you think that might have happened to any degree with your daughter. Well, uh, you have to look at that. Uh when we got divorced, my daughter was 12 years old, and uh, yeah, we had a yeah we had a good relationship together. I had no problem with my ex-wife. It was just a short time after the divorce, but I think this is normal. 
and we were good friends and everything worked very well together. And but, I was but hang on, very- sorry to interrupt, but if you had a good relationship with your ex-wife and you were yeah. friends and it was all very civilized, why not just stay married? No, because because it didn't work anymore. Yeah, this is a very personal thing. And I think, uh, yeah, it takes too much time to tell that now. And uh, it, it was over. It didn't work anymore. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, there are always two people who, um, yeah, who be, belong to the situation. So if it doesn't work anymore, it doesn't work anymore. And it didn't work anymore. And what is your, uh, what is your daughter's complaints? Uh, has she voiced them clearly about what issues she has with Rania? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, she, uh, she has a problem with Irania. Some, yeah, you know, on the one hand, uh, Somehow I can understand her uh, if I try to imagine her situation and uh, being a young woman and your father is marrying a woman that is younger than you. And uh, so that there is something, yeah, that she has a problem with that. I can understand that somehow. Yes, but what but is the I'm, problem in specific that she has what is the problem what does she think that she's a gold digger does she think like does she think you're being foolish does she think that it's just sexual does what is it that she has as a criticism of the relationship yes of course yeah yeah these are uh, yeah of course as you said as you mentioned she thinks she is a gold digger and uh, she thinks she is doing that only to uh, get free and everything and uh uh, yeah, these are all the complaints that I hear a lot of times uh, regarding the relationship to Rania. And um, yeah, okay. Now, Somehow, um, why do you think, because either she's right or she's wrong, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just bunging in here from the internet. So either your daughter's right to a large degree or she's wrong to a large degree. Now, Rani, of course, says that you're happily married and it's lasted um, more than the six months your daughter thought that it might last. And um, I guess my question is, was there anything in your relationship with your daughter in the past, before Rania came along, that may have given your daughter reason to question your judgment? Because your daughter obviously feels, I guess, or believes that you're making a very bad decision. So she must, I would imagine, have had some reason to question your judgment in the past. You should ask this question to my daughter. Uh, but <laughs> Maybe too late to call her now. Her. But. Uh, unfortunately, not here. But uh, the only thing I can tell you is I was a very tolerant father. Yeah, And this is the moment where that I don't understand. She was allowed to, to bring everybody here. She was. Uh, we shared the time with our daughter. She was... Uh, yeah, you can say uh, um, mathematically one week with her with her mother and one week with me. Um, and uh, so we shared this together, my ex-wife and I. We don't uh, uh, live a long distance from each other. Uh, it's very close and uh, it worked very fine. And I was a very tolerant father. And uh, I think so, so... Yeah, all the things that I have experienced also with her friends, yeah, 
sometimes she was complaining she had a new boyfriend and she brought him in. And so I was talking with him two hours and then she was complaining, oh, when I bring a new boyfriend and you are talking with him two hours, yeah. And, uh, but that was a nice com complaint, yeah, it was fine. I uh, even worked uh, at the school as a theater teacher because I have a, a yeah, an actor background and uh, yeah, it was working very fine with these young people and they liked me and it was, was nice. I cannot say that I was a bad father at some point, yeah. And I was, what, uh, what efforts have you put in and what have you tried to do to solve the distance in the relationship? Um, so my daughter and I, we didn't talk to each other for more than one year. And, um, that was a very, very bad experience for me because anyway, so in this one year, which is not, uh, long ago ended, um, I always thought about her and I thought, oh, damn hell, shit, how can we solve this problem, yeah? And anyway, Sorry, I... Just at, at the beginning of the year that you didn't talk, was there a big conflict? Was there a blow-up? Or did she just... Were things yeah. pleasant and then Yeah, nothing? there was a blow-up and there was an, an incident uh, that caused this, yeah, this massive... Then what was uh, that? lack and it was damn yeah it's somehow shameful so Rania's watching me right now and uh, so Rania had the idea she said she wanted to have a tattoo I said yeah go ahead and have a tattoo and she said wouldn't it be a nice idea if you have if you had that too and I said damn yeah I never wanted to have a tattoo in my life but uh, so that's somehow a nice idea and we 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 planned that for months and then there was one day in january in i'm sorry i'm sorry i just you're in your 50s yes you uh, meet I'm, I'm a hot you. young foreigner and you get a tattoo did you buy a sports car too did you get a hair plug i mean it's no, <laughs> kind of a no. midlife crisis cliche right oh, no, this is not a midlife crisis. You know, I have nothing to do with that. I didn't want to have a tattoo, but then I thought, yeah, why not? This is like a second ring that you wear after your marriage. Yeah, this is a this is something that, and it was a word that was uh, uh, that was. Yeah, very important for her. It's freedom in Arabic, and so we tattooed that on our on our arm. And, uh, yeah, so that's just what we did. And I published that on Facebook. Are you still there, Yes, Stefan? yes, you, you published your Arabic yeah. tattoo of the word freedom on Facebook. Yeah, and uh, so she was complaining. She wrote me. She wrote me a message, and this message was the point. Uh, yeah, okay, I still have this message. And, okay, to make the long story short, the message was an insult from the first word to the last word. And I thought, no, no, this is uh, uh, this is now too much. 
Um, this she is was, sorry. The message was she was insulting you from beginning to end for oh. posting the. Oh, for, is it was it for getting the tattoo? Was it for posting the tattoo? I mean, what? No, for for getting the tattoo, and uh, she herself has tattoos anyway. But uh, she was really she was really upset about this thing. Yeah. And I thought, no, um, this is too much. This is uh, really a little bit too much because, um, no, um, I do not deserve that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because <laughs> to get insulted for something like that. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, she, she, like most young people is very focused on the, on her peer group, right? And it may not have been a high-status moment for her in her peer group when her father gets a, a tattoo of the Arabic word for freedom and posts it publicly. I mean, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with the decision. I'm not a huge fan of tattoos myself, but as far as I'm, I'm just sort of putting myself in her shoes, I, I could see that as not a high-status moment with her peers. Yeah, but anyway, I mean... Um... What is that? Her father is getting a tattoo under which circumstances, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so why does she complain so much about that? And, well, did did uh, you know that she was going to be bothered about the tattoo before you posted about it on Facebook? She was not informed about the tattoo before. Did I she not? She, she had no idea you were getting a tattoo. No, she had no idea. Yeah. Why wouldn't you talk to her about it? Because we didn't talk uh, very much in this time. No, no, this is it, before the break. This is when you had a good relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but, 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 no. Uh, no. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Since we married, they had the breakup somehow. So. Oh, this so this is in. after she stopped talking to you? Of course. No, after six months we got married, she still, had to, she still talked to him. Okay, so, so when is this tattoo thing, thing happening? Six months after we married, something like yeah. that, yeah. So, but so this before got, you got married? It was six months after we married. No, yeah. no, but I'm asking for the blow-up that caused the non-communication, and, and this is the one. So she, the, the relationship was bad before the tattoo, then you got the tattoo and posted about it. So as a father, like this is my question, so as a father, yeah. shouldn't it be your job to know what's going to really bother your daughter? I'm not saying you have to guide your life by it, of course, right? But that's part of intimacy, right? Like, I, I can tell you this. If I came home with a tattoo, <laughs> my wife and my daughter would be very upset with me. Like, I know that for a fact, especially if I'd never talked about it with them beforehand. Now I know that she's grown and all that. But did you not know that your daughter was going to be bothered by the tattoo? May I say something? No, no, this is she a question. No, it's not a question for you, Rania, with all due respect. It's a question for the father. It's a question for the father. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, okay. Somehow this uh, tattoo story gets now very important. But uh, anyway. Um, but this was the yeah. blow up, right? Yeah, this was somehow uh, the straw that, call, uh, uh, that caused the camel, uh, that, that yes. the camel's so back. So did yeah? you not know that it was going to be bothersome to... Your daughter, that you got an Arabic word tattooed on your arm, without talking to her. Can you can you ask this question again, please? Sure. Were yeah. you very surprised that it bothered her 
that you got a tattoo without discussing it with her? Yes, I was somehow surprised. So that, so that means that you don't know your daughter that well in this moment if you do something that's very upsetting to her. Now, please understand, I'm not saying you can't do things that are upsetting to your daughter, but if you don't know ahead of time that it's going to be upsetting, it means that there's a disconnect between you, if that makes sense. Okay. Which disconnection is it? The disconnection is you don't know when you get the tattoo that it's going to bother your daughter. Uh, because yeah. it, the reason I'm saying this is that if you had known ahead of time that it was going to bother your daughter that much, I assume that you would not have just posted it on Facebook, right? You would have sat down with your daughter, maybe even beforehand, and said, this is what I want to do. It's going to be a permanent change to my body. Did you ever speak negatively to your daughter about her tattoos, or were you fine with her tattoos? I was absolutely fine with her tattoos. Right. She she, but, but they were her thing, right? And I assume that they're kind of a youth thing and a sailor thing, or at least they used to be, right? So it's kind of a youth thing and it's kind of her thing. So if you had known that posting the picture of the tattoo would have cost you a year of conversation with your daughter, I'm going to assume that you wouldn't have posted the picture. You would have found some other way to break it to her. Like it wasn't worth it posting the picture if it cost you a year talking to your daughter, right? But it's not about the tattoo. <laughs> um... Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, no, no, come on. It can't have been worth it <laughs> to post that picture if it cost you a year of talking with your daughter, right? I'm sorry, Stefan, but I have to say it's not about the tattoo. She called him the next morning of our wedding, the next morning, crying and saying, I lost my father for the rest of my life. So the problem began long before the tattoo story. Okay? No, I understand it, that. I understand that. Was, but if this catalyst... If the tattoo posting was a catalyst for him not talking to his daughter for a year, then it wasn't worth it, right? I mean, maybe you, you looked cool to some people because you posted this picture, but it wasn't worth it in terms of not being able to talk to your daughter for a year, right? So it was a mistake to post the picture in terms of how it affected your relationship with your daughter, right? Ah, uh, well, was it a mistake Look, um, uh, the, the relationship between my daughter and me was somehow, as Rania mentioned, it, uh, it somehow destroyed from the moment on I married Rania. She was complaining about that all the time. Maybe I could have posted a picture of our holiday in Egypt uh, when we are sitting in the ocean and uh, that would have caused the same amount of uh, anger in my daughter. And uh, so, yeah, there was, it was for me, somehow she was looking like an incident that, uh, that makes her feel free to attack me in a very, very bad way. And so that happened then. Yeah. So you, you don't, so what you're saying is you don't regret posting the picture of your Arabic tattoo. Oh, no, I don't regret that. Why? Because it triggered a break with your daughter that lasted for a year. Yeah, but maybe 10 other people liked it very much and thought, yeah, well, it's fine. What? Uh, what, what do you care about 10 other people? We're talking about your daughter. Yeah, but anyway, what's the crime to post a picture on Facebook about a tattoo? This is nothing. And, uh, no, 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 I... but it's not nothing to your daughter. Yeah. Uh, and you can't so... decide for her. Oh. 
what bothers her and what doesn't. And again, I'm not saying she's justified. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I am saying is, given that you did not talk to your only child for a year, it wasn't worth it to post the picture. And not knowing the effect of posting that picture means that you were disconnected, I think, from your child's preferences at that point or your child's state of mind. And if you are defending posting the picture, even though it costs you a year of conversation with your child, I can understand now more and more why it bothers her. Oh, yeah, this is very interesting. So go ahead. Well, you tell me what you found interesting because I I think I made my point. (laughs) May I say something? Okay, but try and keep it brief. I'm trying to talk to the guy about his his daughter, but go ahead. It has nothing to do with the tattoo, okay? It has nothing to do with the tattoo? And how do you know that, Rania? Because they had big problems when we got married. And the relationship was... You've said that. I understand that. I understand that. But I'm talking about this particular incident, which your husband brought up as the catalyst for not speaking to her for a year. No, this is the day he decided... When she calls him crying and said, you did something bad, he told her, that's it. I don't want to hear this anymore. So he stopped the relationship because of this incident. She was always complaining since we got married. She was complaining about everything in his life since then. So it so was you a don't very like relationship between them. So you don't like her? Up since the tattoo, not her. So you, Sorry, Rania, you don't like his daughter? I don't even know her. I met her No, no, you are, you are speaking negatively about his daughter, that she complained about everything, that she was negative, it wasn't about the tattoo, the problems were before that. So you don't like his daughter. I don't like how she thinks of me and how she thinks that she can control her father because he gave her all... Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here, Anya. (laughs) Control her her father? You talked him into getting a tattoo in his 50s. What are you talking about his daughter controlling her father? Wouldn't you say that you've had quite a bit of influence over him, getting him to tattoo something in Arabic on his arm? Well, it's not a big deal because it was something that it meant something for us. And it's not... No, it meant something to you. He wasn't going to get a tattoo otherwise. No, he was convinced. If you would have said, I'm not convinced, just have it yourself, I would have no problem with that. But we were... Thinking about it since we got married as a second ring. No, no, you were thinking about it and he went along with it. Listen, Rania, I'm a guy and I'm not dating you and I'm not married to you, right? So I'm just telling you and, you know, your husband can tell me if I'm wrong. He wasn't going to go out and get a tattoo if you didn't want it. Of course not. Okay, so then don't say it's a we, it's a you and he went along with it. Well, since he had it, he's proud of it. Well, I don't think it's worth losing your daughter over a tattoo myself. I mean, if I had to trade between a painful, permanent skin inking inking operation or being able to talk to my own daughter, I'd have a tough time choosing choosing the tattoo, to be honest with you. Well, I don't think the tattoo was the trigger. The trigger was marriage, me, marrying me. Well, yes, I, I understand that. I understand that. But I can also understand that you have an enormous amount of influence over this girl's father, right? Well, she does not even know me and she does not want to know me. But she knows 
She knows, you understand why she got upset about the tattoo, is a tattoo is a mark of your control over her father. It's a brand. Yeah, but you understand that the tattoo also means that the father has the freedom to do whatever he wants with his life, marry a woman, have a tattoo, do whatever he wants with her life, with his life, and she has no control over him. She cannot tell him, do this and don't do that. No, that's this apparently your job now. Go get a tattoo. Okay, I'll get a tattoo, right? But what the heck is this? Is this guy not an adult? He's even the father. He has the control to do whatever he wants with his life, with his body. So if she thinks she can tell him, do the tattoo, don't do the tattoo, I'm fed up with this woman. I mean, I had a problem with him in the first six months that she was telling him she can do whatever with him. Come visit me in my house. I want to come take some things from your house and so on. What the heck is going on? I was really upset and this was one of the triggers to say, I was really seeing this man not being a man and standing up for his words because he was telling her, oh, go ahead, tell me whatever, I can do it for you because you are my daughter, you can control me. But when it comes to personal freedom, okay, he is not a liberal anymore. He cannot tell to a woman, you are a woman, you are better than me, I do whatever you want, whatever you say, even you are the daughter, I'm the father. No, I'm from a culture that says, I'm the man, I do whatever they, I want, yeah? I have to stand up for being a man. So I want this guy to stand up for his daughter and tell her... Wait, wait, there's wait, hang on. You, hang on, hang on. You have control. to stand up for being a man? Yes. But you're you a woman. You are coming over the line. You are telling me to do things. I don't think it comes up to my freedom. Like who I date or what I do with my body. Because he gives her the freedom, she does not give him that freedom. Right. So she, un- she look. So she understood what the tattoo was exactly. She understood that the tattoo was a sign of your ownership of her father, that you were setting the boundaries, that you were setting the rules, that you were setting the limits. What rules? If he gets a tattoo, what other rules? I don't see other rules. I see her rules that she's calling him the next morning and saying, "Oh, father, I feel so bad. I lost you forever. What the heck is this?" Did I come from the from the Arabic world where women are oppressed or who or, or she? Yeah, what's going on? So you have no sympathy for her perspective, right? I don't, because if my father married a twenty-eight-year-old younger woman than him, I would have never ever had a problem with her. If she would have been a nice person and have values. Yes, but Rania, ever. you're in Germany now. You're not in Algeria. So the fact that your father in Algeria or in that custom or in that culture would have done X, Y, and Z, what does that have to do with going to Germany? I don't get to go to Japan and say, what are you people sitting on the floor for? Yeah, but there's a line between freedoms and, 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 and uh, telling you what to do. Obligation. She's obligating him to do what she wants, not what he wants. It was their relationship for 20 years, right? And now you're coming in and saying that their relationship is wrong and it needs to conform to your culture and your history. No, I'm not saying that. That's exactly what you're saying. My no, father would I'm... never have done this. If I was her, I would have done this. It's their relationship, which, which was around for a lot longer than you were. Oh, he marries. Why does she have to control that and tell him this is good and this is bad? 
And not just that, she had to control who he dates. So what you're saying, Rania, is they had a good relationship until you came along with your values and your history yeah. and your culture, and you said that their relationship was wrong. You made him get a tattoo, and then you're worried why she... You, you can't imagine why she has a I negative view of anything. I thought super bad. She has broke up with him since she, he made me. She, not me. Yes, I understand that. But you understand yeah, but you're I'm bringing happy. in values. You said... The relationship between the father and the daughter was good. good And then you came in and viewed that relationship as bad or as poor or as deficient or he wasn't being a man or whatever it is, right? Because because based on your culture, hang on, hang on, don't, don't talk over me. I'm not married to you. Okay. Let me finish my point. We all right? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. The relationship was good between the father and the daughter. You come in and you view the relationship as bad because of your own cultural lens and your own cultural history. Your family's values, let's say, from Algeria. And then you start causing trouble in the relationship. And I can hear, I can hear you describing it very, very clearly. And you'll hear it if you listen back to this, which I hope you will. So then you come in with your values and the relationship after you arrive in his life, his relationship with his daughter has gone from good to absolutely terrible, virtually non-existent. But it was not because of me. No, it absolutely was because of me. No, it absolutely was was because you're the only thing that changed. The the only thing that changed was that you, and I'm trying to help you guys here. I'm, I'm not trying to cause problems here. But you, you, if you're this self-righteous and like, well, she, he just wasn't being the man and, and, and she was just whining and she just wanted him to do everything and blah, 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 blah. Then you're coming barging into this relationship in Germany that existed for more than a quarter century or so I, <laughs> before you. And you're coming in and saying this relationship is problematic. This relation, and, and basically you kicked her out of the nest. You kicked her out I of her father's kick heart. I didn't out of anything. I'm sorry? I did not kick her out of anything. You should She's hear yourself when you make fun of this girl. You have contempt for her. I have something against her behavior because her behavior is not to be uh, tolerant with. Well, well, what's your tolerance? You're, you're saying that his relationship with his daughter is bad based on your values from, from Algeria. And where's your tolerance for, for how their relationship was? Do you have no sense of the fact that your entrance into this relationship has to some degree cost your husband his relationship with his daughter? Do you have any sense that you might have had anything to do with that? I do, but it's not about me. I did not break up anything. Every so you, your contempt I, for her and your contempt for their relationship has absolutely nothing to do with their problems. Me as a person, no. Her has a problem. She has a problem that we are married. Yes. But and, and I it has, sorry, I just want to just want to be really clear because I I get you're not going to listen to this, but I just maybe I can get through to the husband, or maybe I can get through the listeners, or maybe I'm just talking to my hand. I don't know. But Rania, what you're saying is that your negative view of their relationship, your contempt for her, I have has no absolutely her. nothing to do with the negative relationship that has resulted after you came into her father's life. But Stefan, you don't get something right now. I had no contempt for her. I was very, very nice with her. And then suddenly she dresses in black and comes to our wedding and then looks like she is in a funeral. And the next morning, she does not even say hello to my mother. 
in the in the wedding. And then next morning comes on and calls him and crying and say, I have lost you forever. So I have nothing against her. Every time they had a fight on the phone, I told him, please make it good again. I want to meet her. I want to do everything. I remember the time after they did not talk somehow for two months after the wedding. And then he called her and said, please come meet us at this place in the restaurant. And she said, I don't come meet your wife. And so on. So she had everything against me. This so it's all, I understand. So this song. So, so, so his, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So the, the 100%, 100% of the problems in the relationship is hers and 0% is yours. You've done absolutely nothing wrong. It's 100% her, her issue. Against her personally, I did nothing wrong. I never, ever talked to her bad. I never, ever told her father to do something bad against her. I always even wanted to repair their relationship. Okay, so you're entirely innocent. You've done absolutely nothing wrong. And the fault is all in the daughter. Is that right? She does not even value her father Just answer the question. You've done everything 100% right. She's done everything 100% wrong. And the blame is all hers. It's it's just a yes or no. The blame is 100% hers. There's nothing you could have done differently or better. I could have done something differently. Maybe she had let me. Yes. So, so basically you're saying there's nothing you could have done differently. There was no choice you could have made that could have been different. Do you think I, that it was worth, like, if you, could have, if you could go back in time, given that it was the tattoo that seemed to be the catalyst for this not speaking to, to her father for a year, do you, do you think that the tattoo was worth it? Um, <laughs> well... I don't even know what the heck does the tattoo mean. If you could go back in time and not get the tattoo and he had a chance to have a better relationship with his daughter, would you go back in time and not get the tattoo? Um, I don't know if the tattoo means a lot, but it's for me, uh, if you had to have the tattoo or not, it would have been the same situation as now. I don't see the tattoo as as a big a big move or a big difference in the but, relationship. But, but, but Rania, the issue isn't whether you see the damn tattoo as a big deal. You understand that? The issue isn't whether you see the tattoo as a big deal. The issue is whether his daughter sees the tattoo as a big deal. Could you, if you could go back in time and do something to heal the relationship between your husband and his daughter by not getting the tattoo, would you go back in time and not get the tattoo if you had that wish? Yeah, if it would have made the relationship better, yes, I would not have had the tattoo. But Good. I'm positive it's not about the tattoo. Yeah. Okay, you've said that also a million times. So, uh, if you could put your husband back on for just a second. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Hi. Why is she doing all the talking here? I'm not quite sure. This is your... Well, you, well, you, you say you were a good father, right? So, you raised a good daughter? Yes, I raised a good daughter. Do you She's, think that Rania, as she believes, is 100% right, did absolutely nothing wrong, and your daughter is 100% wrong in this situation? Yes, in this situation, my So then you daughter, can't have been a good father. Why? You no, have no, 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 no. We're we, we done talking to you for a sec, Rania. Just, just hold your britches there. So if... Rania did everything right, but your daughter is prejudiced against Rania or is negative towards Rania. Then there must have been something deficient or wrong in in your parenting to raise her in in such a way that she would have this negative view. 
of your, I guess, girlfriend, fiance, and then wife for no reason whatsoever when she does everything right and your daughter just dislikes her for no reason whatsoever? Well, you might be right uh, if I have done something wrong with my parenting, but I would be interested in uh, what have I done wrong? Hmm. Do you understand that Rani has some contempt towards your daughter? That she makes fun of her in a public forum like this? Um, she she m mimics her whining and complaining and all that? Well, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. That's fine? No, it's not funny. It's fine. It's okay. No, uh, it, it, you have no problem with your wife doing that? No. Why? I, th I feel this is one of these questions that I don't even know how to answer. That, that your wife is publicly expressing contempt for your daughter and you have no issue with that. Uh, it depends on the words she's using. It was a tone. She, she, she mocked her and portrayed her as a whiner and a controller and a manipulator and all that, right? Wait a, just a second. I want to answer this question before. If she, if she would insult my daughter in a very bad way, I would not uh, be okay with that. Oh, my God, but, man. She has insulted your daughter. She's mocked her. She's made fun of her. She portrayed her as a whiner. She's portrayed her as negative and prejudicial and, and hating her for no reason whatsoever. She says she's 100% right. Your daughter is 100% wrong. And you think none of this is negative or, or, or nasty or destructive towards your daughter in any way, shape, or form? That was not actually an insult, how Rania said that. Oh, you agree with Rania, then? That, that, no, uh, you don't get the full picture. Because, uh, yes, um, yeah, Hush, yeah. He, I was he, insulted he by her. Have, yeah. He did not have the chance to yes. take part of all these situations we had. Yeah. And I had with my daughter. After yes, I understand. Now, Rania has thrown your daughter under the bus again and said that your daughter insulted her. And again, she's 100% right and your daughter is just mean. Yeah. So, where's, yeah. man, where's your loyalty to your daughter? Do you have no capacity? Listen, Rania, I'm sure you're a lovely person, but I guarantee you, you're not 100% right in this situation. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And your, your arrogance but in believing that you are is kind of jaw-dropping. You can be surprised. No, I'm oh. not surprised at all. I, I've heard enough. I am guarantee you, you are not 100% right in this situation. And if you are 100% right, it means that you married a guy who's a bad father, which I don't believe. Well, wait. No, no, Rania, we're done with you. I just wanted to point that out. I just wanted to point that out. No, Stefan, I have to say something. Uh, that's uh, the questions you ask. That's the reason why we like you. Because you ask questions that nobody else asks us. And uh, that's why I'm honored to talk to you. And, uh, but in this situation right now, you don't get the full picture. And it's very hard to, to give you the full picture because you have never been in the situations. And uh, how shall I say that? Yeah, you, you, if, a is person, a if a person, <laughs> a person is arguing with you, and uh, you get the picture of the person. And sometimes persons arguing with you and they have a really bad manner in a bad manner in this. Uh, 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 what I want to say with that is 
they they are negatively they they just want to destroy you they just want to they just want Wait, to take are you your, referring to your daughter now i'm talking about my daughter exactly right so your and daughter this, now wants to destroy you uh this is this is where your well, loyalty has been after being a father for a quarter century that you raised no, no, a child that you're now publicly accusing of wanting to destroy you I was talking about a situation to talk in generally with people and uh, you oh have God, some people. Man, no, no. How whipped are you? Are you kidding me? No. This is your daughter. She just wants to destroy you? Uh, do you no. hear yourself? Does it... No, she do you doesn't hear want any to loyalty to your own flesh and blood? Do you understand why your daughter might have a problem with your relationship with Rania? That you're now saying that she wants to destroy you, that she's 100% wrong and you're, you have no problem with Rania mocking her and making fun of her. And I'm a good father, but I raised a child who wants to destroy me. Oh, man, I don't even know what to say. I don't even, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I literally can't continue with this conversation. I have no idea what to say oh, no, at this point. If, if your daughter is such a horrible person, I don't know what to make of you as a father. If your daughter no. isn't such a horrible person, I don't know what to make of you as a father. But the loyalty deficiency here is truly appalling. You, you, you have a loyalty to your daughter. You should damn well have a loyalty to your daughter because she's your flesh and blood. You raised her and you cannot throw her under the bus as a parent. You cannot make her the bad guy to appease your wife. That is unjust, unfair. And I'm beginning to have just a little bit more sympathy for the daughter here. Stefan, you got me wrong. You picked up one point in my uh, statement, destroy, and you made a big deal out of it. it big, because I used this word. And no, I checked, I, no, I checked with you as well. And you confirmed no, it. Have known that before. I would have not used the word destroy. I was just explaining people that have negative feelings against you, and that was what my daughter had. She had negative feelings against me, and I couldn't understand it. So uh, parents I are never victims, man. I don't, don't, know. don't ever, don't ever try to portray me to me. Don't ever try to portray yourself to me as a victim when you're the parent. Okay. You're the parent. You raised her. You instilled in her values. You modeled behavior to her. Do never, ever, to me, on this show, crawl up to me and complain that you're a victim of your own children. You are the parent. You set the tone. You raised them. If they have problems respecting you, that's on you, not on them. You don't have the right to play the victim. As a parent, I'm just telling you that right now. And there are lots of studies that show that diversity decreases social trust in countries, in communities, in neighborhoods, and perhaps even, in this case, in families themselves. And I'm sorry, in order to retain my emotional energy for the rest of the show, I am going to move on. But I do appreciate the call. I do think it was enormously instructive. Okay. Thank you. All right, up next we have John. John wrote into the show and said, I am an instructor at a prestigious Ivy League school. In my day-to-day -day interactions with my coworkers and students, I can taste the liberalism in the air, and it is absolutely disgusting. 
Do you have any advice for a conservative slash libertarian instructor who wants to help fight the indoctrination of college students while not committing career suicide in an academic environment dominated by leftist ideologies? That's from John. Well, hey, John, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Stefan. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. Which okay. school is it? No, I'm kidding. Don't I? <laughs> Don't I mean... answer that. Uh, okay, w- w- what does liberalism t- taste like in the air? Does it does it taste like chicken? What does it, what does it, it smell it, like? Give me give me a sense of what it's Unfortunately, like. it does not taste like chicken because if you know how to cook chicken, chicken tastes pretty pretty tasty. It's kind of like there's there's a willingness to ask some questions, but not willingness to ask questions that might interfere with what they how they see the world right and so if you sort of challenge victimology and if you challenge class baiting and race baiting and gender baiting and identity politics and so on is that where you sort of run into challenges yeah um i It was a lot easier kind of kind of formulating this question when I was writing it down. Well, you but didn't have to be as careful when you were formulating the question, right? It, it's, it's challenging uh, walking the line yeah. in real time. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, there's it's, – it's, it's one of those like they'll ask good questions when it pertains to helping them understand the topics that we're teaching them. But there's, it's, it's always that they kind of have these assumptions and aren't willing to challenge those as well. Um, they kind of, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's, it's just like the, the students and the, the faculty kind of take a lot for, for granted. That's yeah, what you're that. saying is there's no free inquiry. Right. That, that everything has to conform to a particular false and horrifying ideology. It's a propaganda camp. I mean, am I, tell me if I'm going right. too far here, but there's very, very strict uh, lines that you have to color inside. And if you go outside those lines, you're not just mistaken. You may, in fact, just be satanic, right? Absolutely. Okay. So what the fuck are you doing there? That is an excellent question. Well, you know, I try to get um, to the meat of the matter relatively quickly. So you know, I'm I'm glad we got here really quickly. Good. You know? um, honestly, how can I be a good concentration camp guard? Well, I think there's another question you might want to ask first. But sorry, John, go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, I I love teaching. It's it's great, and I need this position to give me a leg up for what comes next. And what comes next is medical school, hopefully. Oh. I'm in the sciences. Oh, you're kidding me. You're saying it's this lefty in the sciences too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Ah. Oh. Wow, politically correct physics. I mean, boy, talk about your antonyms. But uh, all right. Um, but in the sciences, isn't it um, sort of more objective? 
It is. So I teach freshmen. And there's a lot of assumptions that are being made by the freshmen that are not correct in my one-on-one -on -one interactions with them. Now, and hang on a sec. I'm sorry I, to interrupt, John, just after I ask you a big yeah. question. Yeah. I can feel your anxiety from here. Like, you, you, you're, you're walking through this conversation like it's a landmine of vipers. It absolutely is. Right. So this level of internal censorship is not good for you, right? I'm, I'm aware of that. Okay, good. I just want and you to be aware I of that. I want the audience to be aware of that, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's one of those – because there's so much – because those of us who don't you know, follow the regularly, programmed, uh, regularly scheduled programming – have to do all of this internal censoring. It's a lot harder to kind of reach out when the, reach out to the students and kind of help them come back from you know they didn't do so well on the exam or they're having trouble understanding a certain topic and they need a little bit of emotional support. And it's it's really hard to walk the line of being like I'm also a person. I'm not just some person, so, some instructor who knows the material that you're supposed to learn and, you know, has read the literature of how to teach the, the material. Oh, no, no, and no, sorry. Sorry, we've just veered into Fogland. I, yeah. I have no idea what okay, you're talking about at this point. So, uh, yes, I, okay. I fully accept that you're a human being. I just don't know how this is particularly answering my question. So when you talk okay. about career suicide, tell me some of the things, I'm not, not even saying the things that you specifically believe, but some of the things that you would consider it impossible to talk about without being targeted? Um, if you think that the current president has done anything of merit, that is fairly... People will look at you, people will remember that you said that, and that might cause some people to take issue with you. Or it might inhibit your career potential, right? Absolutely. Your, your chance to find, oh, I mean, I remember, man, man alive. What I had to do, what I had to go through to find an advisor in my graduate degree was unbelievable. It was uh -huh. unbelievable. I met with so many different people. I had a great thesis and all that. I got an A, ended up getting an A in my master's, but man alive. It was crazy. I guess word had gotten around that it wasn't on the left, but it was like, no, this doesn't really interest me. I don't think it's a big topic. And then you'd see the kind of people that these guys were mentoring, these men and women were mentoring. And it was uh -huh. like, oh, Lord. <laughs> so this is what you wanted to do. This is who you wanted to teach instead of me. It is, it is hard. It is yeah. hard. Because, um, yeah, you, you sort of sound like, like someone in one of these North Korean documentaries. What do you think of the dear leader? He's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fairly – I mean, it's – a lot goes unsaid. It's, it's not like there's – like in, in the handbook or, or, or the, the employee's manual, it's, just, it's not like you, you are forbidden to talk about this. Yeah. You are forbidden to talk we, about that. We value but diversity is, is, as long as it all conforms with this particular political absolutely, opinion. Absolutely. But, yeah. but, the, but the culture 
um, in both the student body and in the instructors is really hard to go against if you want to have conversation about things like that. And if you if you if you mention that you are not you know in the school of fish that's going the same direction as the rest of the schools of fish, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, diversity is a lie. That's just what everybody needs to repeat to themselves mm -hmm. over and over again. Diversity exists on the right. It does not exist on the left. Uh, if anyone who values diversity and you're on the left, you're completely fooling yourself. But um, okay, let me let me roll a couple of topics past you and give me a one okay. to ten. You just your gut feeling. A one to ten mm -hmm. uh, of what might negative effects like 10 being the worst of your career you're like you run out of town on a pitchfork and one just being you get funny looks in the lunchroom all okay. right human by human to biodiversity race and iq differences eight oh really there's worse okay <laughs> fine i thought i was starting at the top and working my way down there um, I, I i try not I, I'm, I'm trying to leave some room in case there is something wrong. no in case like you literally come back to life as hither okay um I mean, you Human know. biodiversity, um, male and female brain differences. Seven to eight. All right. Human bio, no, not human. Uh, life choices uh, between men and women as a way of solving the supposed gender wage gap. You know, the women take time off to have babies and, and work part-time jobs. And right. That's, so that's life choices as, uh, as an explanation for the gender wage gap. Probably a nine. <laughs> It's even worse than race and IQ. Wow, you must have quite an HR department down there. Um, affirmative action is destructive to the aspirations of highly talented minorities. I have no idea. That just it's in, is it infinity or just division by zero? It's hard oh, same to thing, I guess. It, it 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 would vary based on who's hearing it. Um, you you have some homework. Yeah. <laughs> Please report back to it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you have to go in a Chewbacca outfit so nobody hose you. For a privilege. Um, you no, know, I do have a horse mask. Skepticism towards systemic racism. Probably a five. Right. Right. Um, skepticism towards white privilege. Six. Skepticism towards the welfare state. Three or four. Inviting Ann Coulter to come and speak at your university. Probably somewhere in the seven range. Inviting Charles Murray to come and speak at your university. I don't know who Charles Murray is. No, he's the author of The Bell Curve, Race and IQ. Okay. Last time he was um, invited to speak at a university, the woman who was there, the woman professor, ended up in the hospital. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I could give you an accurate answer without actually knowing or, or having, having been more familiar with his work. Not, uh, not believe, openly not at all believing that Russia hacked the U.S. election. Two, maybe three. 
thinking that part of the reason Marine Le Pen didn't get into the presidency in France was due to rampant sexism in French culture. Four. Honesty about some of the more challenging aspects of Islam. Seven. Ooh, ooh, I know. Wanting immigration law in America to be enforced. That, there you go. There, you found the time. Auga, auga. Danger, danger. Right, okay. Border wall, 101. Seven, eight. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> pointing out that the first slave owner in America was a black man. Probably a three. All right, that's a bad. So there's, I mean, this is, you could go on and on with this for a while, right? But there's there's a lot that is at least arguably factually relevant to the questions at hand that you can't really talk about, right? Right. Now, the stuff that you can talk about, does it go against what you believe? That depends. Um, yeah, th- listen, that's a big question. Yeah. And I, g- I get that you're ruffling up your inner censors. Do you have any concern about being alone with female students if they're upset? Absolutely. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Um, so, what, whenever you don't Romania enjoy being dragged into a star chamber of uh, feminist attack with no lawyer present. <laughs> not, not quite. And, and to be fair, that also depends on the individual student. Um, That's because, part of the problem, isn't it? It's kind of whim-based. Absolutely. But, all right. So, yeah, what are your fears? Um, but it's 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 it's, extra, it's very safe for the instructor to have one-on-one meetings with students in open areas. Um, whether that's, you know, if, if, you, if your office is adjacent to a fairly well-walked hallway rather than like in some back closet somewhere, um, you leave the door open or barely cracked when you're, when you're meeting with your student, that's fine. But it's, it's, it's one of those, if you, if your office is kind of like in the back of the building, in the basement somewhere, it's probably not the best idea to meet with a student one-on-one in there. Right. So don't you just have to do two years of pre-med in order to get into med? Or do you need a full degree? Or what is the holdup about getting into medical school? Um, it's it's not the academics. It's It's the... I, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of a recommendation from the higher-ups in the department goes a long way towards getting into a good medical school. And regardless of where I am in, um, in my academics, it takes a full year to apply to medical school. It's a process that starts in the beginning of summer and ends probably sometime around January the next year, maybe nice. even later. Hard to imagine um, why American healthcare is so expensive. Let's yeah. crush supply, let's crush supply, jack up demand with Obamacare, and then watch prices go through the roof until socialism. Anyway, sorry. Right. Um, 
So it's it's one of those like applying to medical school is a full year commitment, and you you kind of need to make sure that you have all of your ducks in a row. If I was going to apply this upcoming year, um, it would probably be I would I would start probably in the next week or so. And, and uh, you're would, a white male, right? Done. Yes. So do you know if the medical schools you're applying to have quotas that put you at a disadvantage? Probably. Yeah. On the plus side, at least that generally lowers the quality of healthcare, which, you know, who cares about when you're young? But trust me, when you get to my age, it matters quite a bit. And that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I want to be a doctor is because I know I can do that job well. Right. So how much longer do you have to go before you might be able to get into medical school? Um, probably not more than one, or one more year at, at the most. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a school year, right? So what's it, like three or four months where you don't have to? Mm, no, so I would I'm, – I'm talking calendar years here. Um, play that out for me. I don't – for me, it was like what so September I, I, through April, maybe early May. Right. So, so the application process, I, I, I would be working for another. I, I'd be working at this place for another two, two, two academic years before uh, I was off off to med school. Uh, okay, but isn't that two calendar years? Right, but I'd apply. I'd apply essentially a calendar year from today. Right, okay, okay. I would start that process. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I, I think this is, this is the way I would look at it, John, and I, maybe this will be helpful to you, maybe it won't. I mean, I do have some experience in walking some delicate lines. So I find that as long as I'm honest about limitations in conversations, I don't find them to be such a problem. So as long as you say, okay, my goal here is to get to med school. My goal here is not to, you know, fire Nerf cannons of red pills at everyone in sight. Right. Right. If what you're doing is a means to an end, then recognize it as that. Uh You know, like I ride the ski lift up so right. I can ski down, right? I'm not enjoying the but, ski lift but, up. That's not what I'm here for, but it's necessary in order uh-huh. to do something else. Now, once you recognize it as a means to an end, then it takes off you the feeling that you must tell the truth, that it's bad to avoid certain topics, that it's a lack of integrity, blah de blah de blah de blah Does this sort of make any sense? It, it does. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I feel like my self-censorship is somewhat interfering with the more personal aspects of this job. And oh, you mean I like talking to the students when they're upset, kind of thing? That's a that's an example mm. where it certainly is applicable. Um, but there's probably some some more a little bit more to it than that. And well, what do you mean? I, I want, want to make sure I get the full scope of what you mean. Okay. Um, I know. I think it's it's hard for me to kind of like get in the student's mindset when I hear I 
no, that's 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 probably the vast majority of it. And I'm 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 used to hedging a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I apologize. No, I, that's I fine. Apologize that's that. why I'm a little leery to ask you questions because. I feel like yeah. I need like a truncheon and a swinging light bulb and that melting faced guy from Raider in the Lost Ark. But uh, um, so is, is there yeah. so is it that you're doing some sort of TA work or helping people with helping kids with with who may have done badly or who are having trouble with certain material? And is it that you then have to yeah. try and get them to understand material or regurgitate material that goes against your beliefs? No, it's that. Sometimes the students will be in situations that I don't necessarily see as a big deal because I see the world a certain way, and it is very much a product of how they've been. Okay, John, John, listen, we either have to talk about this stuff or not talk about this stuff. But this right. hedging to the point where I still don't know what you're talking about is not working for either of us. We're either going to have to talk about this stuff openly or not. But me trying to read these tea leaves of like what you're saying, I can't. I okay. can't get no, there. that 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 that. Um, well, what are the challenges um, that you're facing with the students? It's it's really hard to connect with them because I believe that it is hard. That, that that we should work for what we earn rather than having it be given to us and where but d- despite where you know I work it's it's a little it's a little different where there's a huge culture of everyone has to succeed ah right and, and this may this I, may be the first time where they've the students have come up against those kinds of limitations, right? Because there's a lot of social right, promotion. Yeah. A lot of girly stuff has kind of gone into the um, the educational system, particularly in the earlier grades. And I've said this before, you know, women are wonderful for toddlers and, and young kids. They're not that great uh-huh. for older kids. Women raise wonderful children and men are required to raise wonderful adults. And you see this all yep. the time. What are, what are, I mean, because I spent a lot of time around moms being a single, uh, sorry, not a single, but a, a stay-at-home dad. A lot of play, and moms were like, you did it, yay, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, good job, and a little clap, and they're enthusiastic about, you know, stuff that toddlers are learning how to do, which is great, and it's wonderful. But they don't know when to stop that, to go from uh-huh. like, yay, you did it, good job, to like, that sucks. What you did is just terrible, and you're going to have to do it again. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's more of a dude thing to generalize. And since there's been such a feminization of education, there is a lot of this participation trophy, woo woo, you're breathing, you get to pass stuff. And people don't know how to handle not being able to handle stuff. And they don't know how to handle rejection or, or failure or not being good enough. It's very, very cruel the way that we're raising a lot of kids in the West these days. Uh, we're making them uh-huh. very soft, very neurotic, uh, and they need their safe spaces and they d- genuinely they get this weird narcissism of everything I do is like, yay, good job. And it's like, no, nah, most of the times what you do sucks. It's true of me. It's true of you. It's true of a lot of people, you know. A lot. I mean, the number of show ideas we come up with versus the ones that we do, the number of ones that we do versus the ones that are really successful, not just in terms of views, but in terms of changing stuff. You know, 90% of everything is crap. I don't mean this show as a whole because we try and filter out all the crap ahead of time. But nonetheless, it is, um, it is hard to be really good at stuff. And there's a lot of failure in everything that you do. I mean, you look at this with with Shakespeare, right? 80% of Shakespeare's plays Uh are barely ever produced. 
And, you know, people know, like, the best novel writer in, in Western literature, you could say, European at least, uh, Western Europe, Dickens, right? Dickens wrote uh-huh. dozens and dozens of novels, and people know, like, maybe five or six of them. So right. even the very best people in the on the planet have a, quote, 80% failure rate. And if it wasn't for the 20% they're great at, you know, I mean, how, how many people would do Shakespeare's non-great plays if Shakespeare hadn't written his great plays? Well, he'd be like the other playwrights uh, of the time. So even the very best among us have an 80% failure rate when it comes to, to works of greatness. And most people aren't among the, t- the top tier of human beings in terms of productivity. So they just don't have this understanding that most of what we do is not going to work out. And most of the ideas that we have aren't very good. And most of the things that we produce, unless we have very tight quality control, uh, aren't going to be lasting for a thousand years of excellence or whatever. And and there's no humility and no sense of doggedness and no sense of pers- perseverance. You know, that old idea that success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Everybody wants to get rich because they had a great idea. They don't understand that it is the work that matters uh, and, and the persistence that matters. And I'll just mention one story and then I'll get your feedback on it. I haven't said, hey, it's like a new story because I haven't told it in a while. But I think it's the guy who developed, um, maybe it's Ethernet or it was some protocol for transferring data over a network. And he ended up teaching at a university. He had people over to his big giant house. It's this big, beautiful house because he'd made a huge amount of money. And his students would come over and he said, every year it's the same damn thing. Students come over and they say, oh, man, this is a beautiful house. I wish I had invented Ethernet. And the guy says, you think I got this house because I invented Ethernet? Good Lord, no, I didn't get this house because I invented Ethernet. Do you know how many networking standards there were around at the time that I developed Ethernet? Hundreds, dozens at least, if not hundreds. The reason why I have this house is not because I invented Ethernet. It's because I spent 10 years going to every podunk remote conference and writing for magazines and doing all staying up all night to do demos and getting in front of people and wearing out my shoes pounding up and down hallways and convincing people and conjoling people to adopt the standard and that's why I have this house the idea was like 0.00001% of the success that ensued but everyone thinks it's like some flash of lightning you get some great inspiration and then boom you get a big giant house and that of course is not at all it's how a lottery works for one in a million people, but it's not how success works for the rest of us. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much how it is. Like, I think I have some good ideas, but I put them in the book and I don't do any work behind them because I don't have the resources or the contacts to make those things happen. And it's, I don't expect much to come from them unless I actually put the time behind them. It's, it's exactly that. I know applying to medical school is going to be a huge undertaking and it's going to require a lot of work and a lot of perseverance. And it's, it's one of those, like it will pay off if I put, if I put the effort in there, if I put the work in. Have you talked to current working doctors? Yes. What do they think of the profession? Of, of being a doctor? Yeah. It's rather varied. Some of them um, got into it for noble intentions and kind of got beat out a little bit in med school and are kind of just like, well, I'm a doctor now. I guess I'll be a doctor. Whereas others genuinely enjoy making people better because, you know, bad things happen to good people. Amen. And it, it is really hard to go through that 
both as that person and as the loved ones of that person. And if you can be somebody who is competent at getting people who are in those bad situations back to living their lives, then that's that's something worth doing. And it's 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 really just like somewhere in between those two extremes. Yeah, I mean, the statistics are not great. Uh, as more and more paperwork and fears of, of lawsuits and so on have taken over, right? So this is from 2014, by the end of the year, 2014, uh, about uh, estimated 300 physicians commit suicide. And depression among doctors is is fairly endemic. It is, um, it's the second most suicidal occupation. And um, physicians are fairly unhappy. There's a recent study that said nine out of 10 doctors would discourage anyone else from even entering the profession. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm glad there are doctors. I mean, it's fantastic, but I, I just would hate for you to go through all this stuff and find out you didn't like it as much on the other side. You might want to, sh- I mean, I don't know if you get to shadow doctors or something like that, but. Yeah, I've, I've, I've already done a lot of okay. that. All right. I just wanted to make sure you did your due diligence yeah. because that is, a, that is a challenge for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Right. So can you be comfortable or would you be comfortable knowing you can't solve you as an individual as a ta or whatever you you simply cannot solve the personality problems that have been embedded in a ridiculously oversensitized school environment that's gone on for 15 years before you ever showed up and you can't fix right. that you 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 cannot fix that. I mean, I, I don't want to sound deterministic. It, it is an absolutely massive undertaking. I totally understand that. No, it no, no. You can't do it. One person to do. You can't do it. Yeah. You can't do it. It's sort of like, as a doctor, you would never try and talk someone out of type one diabetes, right? It's like, okay, right. let's just, you know, you, 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 words won't help. And then I, this stuff is so ingrained in people. It doesn't mean that it can't ever be done and, and, and so on, but you would need either a purely voluntary environment or much more authority than you have, right? I think I can help people because I'm not giving degrees. Uh, I'm not charging people. You know, it's all donations at freedomainradio.com slash donate. And so I can help people because the people who come and listen to this show, you know, we're going to do 150 million views and downloads just this year alone. They're coming here voluntarily. So I kind of have an authority of charming people into listening to reason, so to speak, right? So so I can I can help change your mind because you're already mostly... I mean, you want to change your mind, you recognize the problem, whereas this is not even the case, right? With, with a lot of students these days, they think the problem is that the professor is too tough or the environment is sexist or racist or dysfunctional or there's ableism or I don't have enough safe spaces or, you know, whatever, right? And right, so they, and don't even, they can't even identify the problem accurately, at least with this, like if you have a lot of authority and you can hand out PhDs, then you can be strict, right? Or if people are with you in a voluntary context and have already identified a problem and are coming to you for a potential solution like you or like the last callers or whatever then you have another kind of authority but where you are i think it would be highly uh, highly risky because you're trying to give self-ownership and self-actualization to people who've had that gift robbed from them throughout their entire childhoods and youths maybe by daycare teachers maybe by teachers as a whole maybe by parents but I mean, I think about this a lot. You know, my, my daughter's having a very, very different upbringing than, than I had. But I am 
I'm I'm going through this weird nostalgic phase. Maybe it's my half century or whatever, but I'm lost in history, as I've mentioned before. And one of the things I'm thinking about is my bad childhood. Was it good for me? <laughs> I mean, it's a weird thing to think about, and I don't. Mind. It's a whole other conversation, which I'll probably do a solo show on. But you can't, I think, go and create an identity that has been sanded down through mindless cheerleading and indifference to what is actually good for people, which is friction and challenge and toughness. You can't go back and undo all of that and create something new. Now, if it, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I can't stand the politically correct environment, I can't do this, assuming it's not a trap, it's not an Admiral Akbar substitute student, then you can have that kind of conversation. But other than that, you know, there's an old phrase this is going back to doctoring from, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, there used to be, and I, I remember a woman who told me about this. Her father, when her father was dying, was sent to such and such home for the incurables. You know, can't be cured. And and the, the I guess it was morphine central. Let's make them as comfortable as possible. That was sort of the, the idea. And, you know, this happens, of course, once. Doctors realize that you're not coming back from that one-way tipping point to the eternal dirt nap to make him as comfortable as possible. Right now, I would say that your job is, unless someone is coming to you specifically identifying the problem, try and make them as productive as possible, as as comfortable as possible, but recognizing there is no rewind and do-over. There's no mulligan for 15 years, and it is not your job to fix all of that, and it would be highly dangerous to do so. You make a very good point. And maybe a nudge here or there. Um, but uh, the problem, see, here's the problem. The problem is not so much that, uh, that people are wrong. Um, there are people, and, and you know this, Probably deep down, maybe you know it consciously, but I'm going to spell it out anyway because I'm a <laughs> going us. I'm a verbose son of a bitch. But the 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 danger is not the people who make mistakes; it's the danger is the people who feed on those mistakes and and amplify those mistakes. You know, like right. there are racial tensions, and then there's the media. You know that works all of that salt into the wound and widens it and throws the maggots in and and race baits and oh he was shot execution style hands up begging for his life he was a disabled guy reading a book waiting for his kid and gunned down for nothing in the school like I mean it's th- th- there's this kind of people as well you know like if you have a fight with your your wife and you go and you complain to someone about your wife and they can sort of listen and then say yeah but you know you guys love each other and and you'll work it out right. And there are the other people who get in there, maybe they've divorced themselves, and like, oh, I knew, I knew she was trouble from the beginning, man. She never listened to you. She's always at you. She, you're not the same as you're not, not the same when you're with her, and, and she strips you down and she takes she's wearing your balls in her purse and she whatever, right? They they get in there and they work. They work the wound. And so the the problem is each individual. I don't think is particularly volatile, but there are these people who circulate around, and I think they circulate around a lot in universities, who are going to whip people up into a frenzy. You know, like, mm-hmm. so let's say you drop something about something that's not politically correct. Now, each individual mostly would probably say, oh, well, you know, that was, 
kind of weird, a little different, but, you know, I mean, it's a frame of mind, it's a particular perspective, and it may sort of come and go in their minds. But if they mention it to someone else, and you know, they get their hooks in, and they start widening and envenoming and poisoning and whipping people up into a frenzy, that's a, a sad, sad occupation, but a very powerful occupation. Um, and, you know, some, some feminists uh, are that way, the race baiters are that way, the class baiters that way, the, the communists uh, are that way. Just get in there and work, work the disagreements, work the resentments, stoke everyone up, set everyone against each other. It's a horrifying profession. And I think the danger doesn't necessarily come from individual students. The danger comes from a chance comment you make that could be misinterpreted that someone else is going to fasten on and whip into a frenzy. And there are some people who it's their hobby. You know, I am a sower of division. I am a creator of problems. So I would say that uh, recognize the limitations, that what you're doing is a means to an end to become a doctor. And you can't solve these problems. That's not your job. And recognizing our limitations, what we can and can't talk about makes it a lot less stressful. Because then you just say, nope, not going to go there. Not going to go there. It's not my job. I can't fix it. It's only going to mess me up. It's not going to help other people. You know, if, you, if you're not in a position where you can withstand negative feedback, and this is not a personal judgment, John. I mean, I respect your courage right. in even calling up and, and having these conversations. It's not like, well, well, I do it, so you should. It's like, what's my job? It's what I get paid for is to talk honestly about often difficult topics. That's my gig. That's my job. And I am peculiarly well suited for it because I have a supreme indifference to the opinions of idiots. So, I mean, it, it works for me. Right. And, and and I I definitely agree with that. Like, I, I feel like I am at least somewhat of an idiot in this context. Like, I kind of, I was brought, I, I was part of the, you know, 15 years of indoctrination where everyone can change the world and that we all should do, as, as we, we all should just, you know, try and help one another as, as much as possible, even if it means, you know, doing things that are probably not good for you. Well, and you will once you become a right. doctor. Absolutely. Right. You, you might save my life, in which case, hopefully you'll be doing a good service to the world in philosophy, right? So everyone has their part you know, to play. I can, I can put that on the bucket list. Save right, Stefan right. right, right. So, you know, um, uh, Dr. Smith of the Oklahoma Surgery Center, Wonderful guy. Hope he's done his bit for philosophy. I certainly think that he has. I think he genuinely saved my life. And so patronize him <laughs> if you've got issues. He's the great, the great guys to go to. So, but, but this is not, like, I, I wouldn't prescribe medicine to people. I'm not a doctor. And you don't have to do philosophy with people because that's not your, your goal. So that would be, I, and I would write this out. You know, you got a 42% chance more likely of getting something done if you write it out. So I would write it out. I would give myself a chart and I'd stick it up on the wall where no one could see it and I'd check it every morning and say, okay, here's the stuff I can talk about. Here's all the stuff I'm not going to talk about. I'm going to memorize this list. I'm going to be comfortable with it. I feel no guilt and no shame whatsoever. This is not a a demarcation of cowardice versus courage, uh, but this is the stuff. It is imprudent and unwise, right? Because it's the Aristotelian thing. A deficiency of courage is cowardice and excess of courage is foolhardiness and both are equally dangerous. And so I would, you know, put the dividing line. Here's the stuff I can talk about. I'm comfortable talking about that stuff. I think it'll be good. Here's all the stuff I'm never going to touch with a 10-foot pole. Stick to that list and get through to where you want to get to. And you can start doing good when you have the training, you have the authority, uh, and you have... um, people who are coming to you voluntarily, as, as people generally do with doctors. So that would be my suggestion. 
Excellent. All right. Thanks, man. Um, Stay well. Go go heal the world. And I appreciate the call. Let's move on to the next. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Up next, we have Andrew. Andrew wrote in and said, since UPP has to apply to all people at all times, there could be no universally preferable positive actions because that would fail the coma test. Does a philosophical approach to ethics have anything to say about positive ways we should live as opposed to simply avoiding immoral actions? That's from Andrew. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Great question. Thank you. I just want to start off by saying um, I didn't really understand the concept of irony until I heard of someone getting a tattoo of the word freedom in Arabic. That's a new one. Which which he may have been ordered to by his wife. <laughs> no, I what can I do? What can <laughs> so I? So many so many layers. <laughs> so many layers that that call. It it had some onion peel to it. Let's just put it that way. All right. <laughs> I was crying too. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, and, and and this is a it's a great great question. You have uncorked a massive torrent of language because I've had this request before and I have been thinking about it for a while. So you are my guinea pig of what needs to be uh, talked about. So do you mind if I just get people up very briefly on the sort of coma test and and UPB and so on? Yeah, go for it. All right. So there's a way of looking at ethics, which I talk about in my free book, available at freedomainreader.com slash free, called Universally Preferable Behavior, colon, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. And in it, I talk about the coma test. And the coma test is... We can't really imagine that somebody who's in a coma is doing an evil thing because they're in a coma, right? right? I mean, you, you, you can't, right? So if you have something that's a positive obligation for virtue, like sell everything you have and give money to the poor, well, the opposite of if, – if that's the good, the opposite of it must be the bad, right? The, like, the opposite of, the, of virtue must be evil, right? Because it's an antonym, right? Up, down, black, white, good, evil. And so if you have as a good – like a significant good, not a nice, not an aesthetically preferable action or API as I call it, but universally preferable behavior. Everyone has to sell half of what they have and give the money to the poor. A guy in a coma can't do that. So he's not doing it. And therefore, um, you have a problem with your moral system. And it's one of the ways that I avoid these positive actions. Like you must do this, right? Because remember the, I remember this from years ago, there was a theologian who wrote, uh, sorry, a theologian who wrote an analysis, believe it or not, of Mad Magazine with you know the Alfred E. Newman gap tooth mm-hmm. grin Mad Magazine. Is that still going these days? I don't even know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You sounded like you made gr- grunts of <laughs> comprehension. So I think it is. I think it is. Anyway, um, there was Cracked, which wasn't so good, but Mad, which was actually pretty good for a they while. They have a cartoon version of it on TV. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Good. So, um, and the theologian wrote an analysis of the ethics of Mad Magazine. It's really, really interesting. And I read it and I found it quite, quite fascinating. And one of the things that he, the theologian pointed out was thou shalt not is not restrictive compared to thou shalt, right? And I've used this, if I say you have to go to this room and this house on this street in Denver, that's pretty restrictive. You've got one place to go. If I say you can go anywhere in the world except for this one house, this one room in this one house and this one street in Denver, you've got... Virtual free movement anywhere you want to go. So thou shalt not, don't go to this house, is much less restrictive than a thou shalt. And thou shalt, well, this is all the welfare state and central planning and socialism and communism. Thou shalt, right? Uh, it, it's all very, it's one of the reasons why it's so 
tyrannical. So I've, the whole argument as to why the coma test is valid is in the book. I want to run through. I won't run through the whole thing here. But the coma test is a, it's a good. Is it perfect? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's fine, but it's a good rule of thumb. Somebody says this is the moral action. Uh, if it's a positive action, then someone in a coma is not able to achieve it. It's doing the opposite of achieving it, and therefore, and, and also, what is the opposite of a positive action? I don't know. Refraining from it is tough to say. So, I, so when I talk about uh, evil, which is violations of universally preferable behavior, and the arguments for it are in the book: murder, theft, rape, assault, violations of property, and so on. Well, the opposite of that is respecting life, respecting property, respecting personal boundaries, respecting personal integrity. Now, of course, someone in a coma actually does not kill people. He does not steal. He does not rape. He does not assault. So is he really, really virtuous? So the opposite of evil is not quite the same as virtue. It's necessary but not sufficient for being virtuous because virtue should be a positive action. And and this is sort of where I think you're coming from. So in the book, I really define what is evil and that we should not kill, rape, assault, murder, and the reasons mm-hmm. why are in the book. But I don't really talk about virtue as in what we should do. And there's a very good reason for that. But is this a fair, a fair way of describing sort of where you're coming from as far as the question goes? Oh, yeah. And this also came out of a conversation that I was having with um, with a guy, and I was I was trying to make the case to him that the only real objective universal rules you can have would be prohibitions. And he was like, no, 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 no. You've got to have something like, you've got to have a universal concept of good. And I was like, well, I agree, but I don't know how to get there. Listen, I I, I don't care that much if people are good. I just want them to not be evil. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I... No, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Oh, man, given the way the world is today, can we all just stop being assholes? Like, I don't (laughs) need everyone to be an angel, but let's stop all this satanic shit. That's my basic rant about this. It's like, sure, I'd love to be in a place where, you know, I could espouse all of these positive virtues and everything that people should do and so on. I'd just be happy if people stopped being crazy assholes for a while. Like, that to me would be fantastic. So it's sort of like... When, when everyone around you is drinking cholera-laced water and typhus-laced water, it's like, hey, everybody, just boil your water. It's like, yes, but, but what about Perrier with a nice bit of lime juice? It's like, sure, that'd be great. But right now, can we just boil our water and stop drinking the stuff that's making us sick? Can we, let's just do that. You know, stop eating your own feces and boogers, and then we can start talking about a Cordon Bleu restaurant down the road. But right now, right now, like, stop hitting your children, stop screaming at your children, and then we can start about how to positively coach them into virtue. So for me right now, given that it's kind of an emergency in the world, which is why everyone's so shocked that I'm not just talking about abstractions anymore, it's right now there's there's a plague, there's a pestilence. I'm basically just trying to get people to stop doing evil stuff. And once we've got a bit of a handle on that, then we can start to talk about the positive stuff. But there's another reason why, other than, to me at least, the emergency aspect of where things are, Andrew, there's another reason why positive values are a challenge. And let me ask you this. So you, you engage in philosophical discussions, right? Right. Good. Good. I appreciate that. Now, tell me, if you would, the philosophical discussion that was the most scary for you that required the most courage. Oh, um, 
I think it had to be, well, that one was pretty scary because I was in the presence of my girlfriend's dad. <laughs> what did you say, son? Right. Okay. Uh, well, I, are you saying there's no moral absolute positive actions? Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> you like want that. me raising my grandchildren? Right. No, he was he was he was really cool about it. But um, it was actually my it was my girlfriend's older sister's fiance who I was talking to in that situation. Um, but the dad and, was and around, it, right? Yeah, the dad was around. You had the ancient masculine castanets clanking away in a corner. Yeah, I got it. Yes, yes, and even though it wasn't of that, it wasn't that monumental for me. It meant a lot because I mean I've got to make a good impression on this family, you know. Oh yeah, you you, you don't want to philosophy your way out of some available eggs. That's no good. <laughs> How philosophy <laughs> spreads in the long run, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And and I'm guessing you weren't counting on a lot of support from your girlfriend. She was listening. Listening, yes, but that's not exactly what I meant. All right, okay. Oh, oh, and what yeah, was right. what was the topic? The topic was this. Well, it started out with veganism, and uh, it got. I was like, I don't know if I, I don't know. I, I was like, to be honest, I think that the whole vegan discussion kind of makes me uncomfortable because I think I really would be offended by the way animals are treated, but like, I kind of don't want to like think about that because it's not really high on my priority list right now. Um, but then we got into, uh, my, my girlfriend's sister's fiance was saying, uh, well, don't you, you, you believe in, in objective truth, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's, he's Catholic. And so it's pretty easy for him to get to that because of, you know, you've got divine command and everything. Um, and so, uh, it was also tough because I didn't want to get too deep into talking about religion at the time, you know, right. uh, in that situation. So, so, so you needed some courage there, right? Now you yeah. needed courage because you were afraid of irrationally hostile responses, right? Rightly or wrongly, but that was your concern, right? Right. Right. So in other words, you needed courage in the presence of a vice, which was an irrationally hostile response. You, you wouldn't, I assume you wouldn't be that concerned with disagreement, as long as it was, you know, decent, honorable, respectful, and so on, right? Right. So you were concerned that people were going to become irrationally hostile, right? Right. So. Maybe not accept me into the family or whatever. reject you, and there, there would be big negative consequences, right? Right. So you needed the, the virtue of courage because you feared the vice of irrational hostility, right? Right. You would not have needed courage if you had not felt it was possible you were in the presence of vice. Right. So courage depends on vice. Right. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. We don't need courage. I mean, I assume you don't think you need a lot of courage to have this conversation, right? No. Right. You're not scared. We're talking about contentious issues, challenging issues, virtue, vice, good, evil, right? Mm-hmm. So, because you, I assume you're, you're not thinking, I'm going to go off half-baked, right? <laughs> no. What's that? That's a great line from WKRP from many years ago. Um, but you don't want to go off half cocked. Hey, hey, I'm always fully cocked. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's actually true. <laughs> but um, so you need courage because a vice, vice is required because, sorry, courage is required because they're vice. Why is there a virtue called honesty? 
There's a virtue called honesty because we fear attack for telling the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And so the positive virtues are necessary because of vice, if not downright evil, that may be around us, right? Right. Would you say that of all of the positive virtues? Let us let us discuss that. I think that's a great question. Give, well, because me, a I was positive, thinking give some... me a positive virtue and then tell me how it exists independent of potential immorality or vice around. Right. Or it's not. Um, isn't, yeah, would, go ahead. I would, uh, the, the example that comes to mind would be um, there's an earthquake in Haiti and I want to go, I have an excess of resources and I want to go help people in Haiti who have been, had their lives destroyed. There was no real vice there, right? Right, right. So that would be something that would be be helpful and nice, and I guess we would put that in the category of virtue? Yeah. Right. Because it's in a sense you're sacrificing the comfort of staying at home. Right. So so there would be a challenge to doing it, which is you'd rather stay home and, and maybe you'd get sick when you were out there, so you'd need a certain amount of courage to go out and do that action. But you would not face uh, – so th- those would be physical um, dangerous, but not moral dangers that you would be experiencing. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way uh, of of putting it. However, <laughs> however, that's pretty rare. Like in yeah. terms in terms of the courage that we would want in the everyday, the courage that we want in the everyday is not going to drop bales of food in an earthquake ridden section of the world. But what we would, I think, in a much more everyday situation, need the courage. To face, to, to speak the truth despite negative consequences socially or professionally, academically. Or, you know, so we're talking about but the last caller, right? So I think we can come up with those situations. I think they're perfectly fair and valid. I just think they're kind of rare. Mm-hmm. Right? So think sure. of, can, can you think of an everyday virtue that you would have, that you would need in a sense, right? Because virtues are things that we, we kind of need. Like, I don't consider it a great deal of, uh, I don't consider myself like a wonderful person because I don't hit my daughter, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, I, I'm not tempted to, it, 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 would, it would be horrifying to even imagine uh, doing that and so on. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to my original point or my original question, you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't be considered a great person for not hitting your daughter. And so what, what we're doing is kind of finding the, the things that make you stand out. Right. Now, there are things that, that in this show where I think I show courage and, and show integrity and show um, honesty in, in difficult situations or with difficult topics. And I'm fully aware that I think I deserve praise for the courage it takes to talk about certain topics or confront certain things. But that courage is only necessary because there are potentially negative consequences for doing so, right? I mean, people might get mad at me, they might talk badly about me or whatever it is, right? So so the courage is only necessary because of the irrationality and hostility of immature or bad people, right? Right. And so in a sense, the goal of philosophy is to try and help create a world where the positive virtues aren't really necessary. Hmm. And that's why I don't spend a huge amount of time. I think they're important, and I think that they need to be discussed, and I'm glad that why you brought this up. But wouldn't it be great to live in a world where 
speaking the truth about things that people find challenging was accepted because people were generally rational and did not attack the messenger, didn't shoot the messenger, didn't get trolley, didn't, you know, do the usual stuff of attack your source of income and try and destroy your reputation and all that. Like, if you could simply speak the truth and it would be like mathematicians discussing a particular theorem, there would be a curiosity and intellectual analysis, but not this crazy tribal hysteria that goes on at the moment. Now, because the crazy tribal hysteria and aggression and exploitation and resource gathering and resource redirection through the state, because all of that's going on, then we do need courage to to speak the truth about certain topics. But the goal of philosophy, like right now, it's such an emergency. I, I, I care less about positive ethics. And it's kind of like a full circle because if philosophy wins this round for once in its goddamn existence, if philosophy wins this round of cultural conflict, we do a lot to start building a world where the success of virtue diminishes the need for virtue. The success of spreading reason and evidence and an adherence to philosophy means that we should not need the kind of courage that we need right now to talk about challenging and controversial issues. Mm. Does that make any sense? Like The purpose of philosophy is to use positive virtues in order to eliminate the need for positive virtues. Kind of like how a doctor wants to eliminate the patient's need for the doctor. Yeah, like in China, in certain places, you you pay your doctor until you get sick, right? So mm. his incentive is to keep you healthy. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think the positive virtues, in a sense, are less important to delineate because we all know them. We all know mm. them. I, I like I don't have a philosophy show where I try and convince people who are hitmen to stop killing people. I mean, <laughs> yeah. don't get me wrong. I'm happy if that happens. <laughs> But that's not my because my listeners aren't this sort of seething goblin-like horde of ravenous sociopathic slaughterers, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, good people. Who, so it's not like, well, you know, boy, I, I really was gonna go and strangle a bunch of homeless guys, but then I read UPB and I'm like, ah, you know, maybe not. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so the, the positive virtues we all know, and so my my goal yeah. is to. To, to model, I think, courage and to show people it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, like everyone has these disaster scenarios about what happens if you tell the truth and you get attacked. It's not as bad as you think it is. It's it's fine and it it's necessary and it's certainly better than the alternative, which is everyone shutting up and the world going to hell in a handbasket. So I think I can model that kind of stuff as I've seen it modeled to me as well. But everyone knows, like you knew at this point that you were in a situation of risk and you knew it was going to take courage to continue to be honest about the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't need anyone to tell you that. Does that make sense? Right, right. So I think that everybody knows instinctively, like anybody with a conscience, with empathy, are the only people who are going to be able to do much good in philosophy. I think those people, like yourself, are going to know when to be courageous and when to be not over-courageous to the point where you're you know, harming yourself or, or whatever it is. So that's why I think I mean, I like to model the positive virtues, but I think right now the focus is just trying to wake people up to the evil they're unconsciously doing, like supporting particular government actions and supporting those who support those particular government actions that are the violations of the non-aggression principle and so on. That is um, just waking people up to the evil that they're doing. I think evil is one of these things that, for most people, like if you're not a total sadist, 
then you have to be fooled into doing evil, which is why propaganda is so powerful. You have to be fooled into doing evil. As soon as people wake you up to the evil that is, I think we generally recoil from it. You know, like like somebody hands you something and you think it's a piece of jello. I don't know why they'd be handing it into your hand or what. No, they hand you a plate. You think it's jello and it turns out to be a jellyfish. You're like, oh, I'm not going to eat that, right? Mm-hmm. If you think it's jello, you're going to get a whole bunch of god awful stings along your gum line, right? But somebody hands you the. And my thing is like, that's a jellyfish. <laughs> that's, that's not jello. That's a jellyfish. <laughs> you throw it away, right? Because you recoil once you see what it is. The challenge is to see what it is. So for me, UPB illuminates evils in the world, not the obvious ones that we know about, like serial killers and so on, but the less obvious ones that we're bamboozled about, like state actions and so on. And so I think it's, to me, just about switching the light on. People will recoil on their own, and once they have the right information, I think our innate sense of good and evil kicks in, which is, again, why so much propaganda is thrown into keeping that knowledge away from us. Once the Mm. light is switched on, we don't want the roach sandwich anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And I'll, I'll work a little bit more on this. Uh, I know that this is not a complete um, circling round of the topic as a whole. So, Andrew, I really appreciate you bringing this up. I promise I will do more, more work on it. And I think a nice juicy essay would be, oh, lovely philosophy essay. I miss them so much. But um, I appreciate you bringing this up. I'm already salivating. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. So uh, thanks for the call. I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate you bringing this up, and I promise I will get back to you more on this. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, man. Okay, up next we have Brian. Brian wrote in and said, In my past, I experienced revelations about reincarnation and the nature of a reality beyond our own. Although I no longer live by them or think of them, having reconciled them with a dedication to living out a material existence for its own sake, Can the lessons of mysticism and reincarnation be reconciled with objectivity, purpose, and a sense of urgency in the material world? That's from Brian. Hey, what's up, Steph? My curiosity, Brian. How about you? (laughs) Uh, Not a whole lot. I'm chilling. I'm uh, sitting on my bed, and I am uh, very nervous about this conversation. What are you wearing? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Actually, during the course during the course of this whole call, I was actually able to shower too. I had my computer next to the shower. So we showered together. <laughs> hey, yeah, we have. <laughs> want to get married and start a family? All, All right. right. So, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what you went through that gave you this perspective, yeah. revelations about reincarnation, and the nature of reality? Yeah. So. Um, I, I got this out of a, a sort of psychotic episode that I had. I, I had encountered. So it was after a breakup. All right. Was, now, now hold on a second. Sure. I need to define psychotic episode. Well, I think I know what a psychotic episode is. Trust me, I have them every Wednesday night, right around this time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but for others, they may be. They may not want you to skate past that particular hole in the yeah. ice without sort of circling. Sure. Well, I. Uh, Maybe I can kind of tell the story, and then you can get an idea of what what it, what it, what happened to me. Please do. I and love a good story. Okay, so it was after a breakup. I was semi homeless, and I was uh, I, I had made a number of decisions that it just they were just all my, my life was really in a bad place, probably the worst point in my life. And I, I I basically came to a decision that I couldn't trust my own uh, ability to make decisions. Jesus, and take I, the I, wheel. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. No, I, listen, I, this this not this not a bad thing at all. In my like, uh, recognizing the limits of ego and willpower is very important in life. So I applaud you for that. You know, if you keep making bad decisions, you got to call on something deeper than whatever part of you has been making those bad decisions, right? Oh yeah. Well, Usually it involves not too. being the penis, but you know, it could be other things as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I was a leftist at the time too, so that should tell you something. Yeah, no, philosophy is a giant spray of cock be gone uh, on people's <laughs> groins. You know, get thee behind me, foreskin. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I basically decided I would kind of voluntarily give up my reason, and I, uh, and I, I just kind of dived into it, and, and I, uh, I found myself experiencing a lot of just weird things. Like I started. Piecing, like I started using kind of magical thinking and uh, I would string together uh, kind of these events that didn't really correlate with one another. They weren't causally related or anything, but I would make them similar. And, and I somehow used a sort of system of mysticism that I just made up on my own to sort of give myself the, the will to carry, carry myself out of this horrible period in my life. And uh, I, I did two things. I, I I did make my life better, but I also pushed it a little too far. And uh, I, I went real crazy over my ex. And I, I, I <laughs> so after I got a good job and bought a house and, and changed my turn, turned my life around, I, I then continued down this dark road. And I, uh, I, uh, I, I basically vandalized her car and I committed some other crimes. And then I, I was I. I I had a lot of baggage and a lot of weird stuff going on. And holy, I, uh, holy yeah. boiler, Batman. Yeah, I did the time for it. I went to prison for it. And, and this is when I kind of thought about everything. And uh, and so I, I kind of organized it all into a system. And then I made it consistent with abandoning it. And uh, I think that uh, when I listened to you talk to a, a man several weeks back about reincarnation... And uh, you heard, uh, you had expressed some uh, concern that, you know, that it doesn't, it's not a system that gives people any sort of urgency in the world. And there's so many problems that we face. And uh, so I, I basically came out of it and I thought maybe I could put the hat on the, that I, uh, that I still, that I, I could temporarily adopt this system for the purpose of a dialogue to maybe allow other people to sort of talk themselves out of it too, or maybe believe in it in a way that add some urgency to their lives uh, in, in a concrete way. All right. So let me, let, no, no, but I'll keep asking. And it's okay, n- sure. n- not necessarily your fault. I mean, I, maybe I have a block, <laughs> but, but I'll, no worries, I'll get, I just wanted to mention something here, which, sure. you know, I'm, I'm big into free will, personal responsibility, self-ownership. Absolutely. And, uh-huh. and I've made these cases a million times. There's a very underrated passage in one of my books called Against the Gods, again, available for free at freedomainradio.com slash free, regarding the unconscious, the subconscious. And the you that you know is not all the you that you are. That is very true. And when you're young, the you that you know, you think is the you that you are, but it's not. It's a subsection. It's a small sliver. It's a tip of the iceberg kind of thing. As you get older, the you that you are complete begins to rise up against the you that you think you are, the, the, the top part, the ego, right? The, the unconscious, the subconscious begins to rebel against the falsehoods 
of the ego. The ego is susceptible to propaganda. The subconscious, not so much. Subconscious is far older than we are. Subconscious has a processing speed that has been clocked at up to 8,000 times faster than the conscious mind. It is all the way down to single-celled organisms, all built up, all the instincts, all... I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, about we, we think we have some particular ego and it's all up to us. Remember when you were a kid and if you're, if you're a boy, right, you want to play sports or, or you want to play tag, whatever. A lot of times when I was a kid, girls were just kind of annoying. <laughs> Because, you know, they couldn't run as fast. They couldn't kick as well. So it's like, oh, a girl wants to come and play, you know. And it's like, oh, fine. Okay, you take her. No, you take her. That kind of thing, right? And then, you know, girls just kind of annoying. And they, they play games I don't, I don't understand, you know. And I, I, I think it's like my, I, my daughter plays, is interested in, plays a very sanitized version of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, when I played Dungeons & Dragons when I was a kid, it was a lot to do with fighting things and winning and <laughs> battling and gathering treasure and so on. My daughter, Dungeons and Dragons, seems to have a lot to do with making mean dragons nice by redecorating their caves. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, because it's all a social construct, <laughs> nothing biological, right? So if you yeah. look at the difference of how you viewed girls before puberty versus after puberty, night and day. From an annoyance to something to be desperately pursued, right? I mean, I don't know if that was your experience. That had something to do with my experience. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I don't know if this is like a – for me personally, I, I had crushes at a very young age on girls. Uh, I, I, I really – Well, based uh, on your actions, we'll get into your R-selected childhood yeah, in yeah. just a moment. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get all of that. Yeah. I understand that. And so, yeah, who who are you? Are you the person who finds girls annoying before puberty, or are you the girls who are you, are you the person who finds girl girls desirous after puberty? Which which who are you? Well, one is pre hormones and the other is post hormones. One is pre sexual maturity, the other is post sexual maturity. Uh, and if shortly post sexual maturity, a good cannon fodder to be groomed by French teachers. So, this who who are you? It's really really an important question. You know, you hit your peak mental processing in your twenties. Who are you later on? You know, I, 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 I thought even better. I didn't think better. I thought faster in my 20s. Now I'm 50, intelligence down a little, wisdom up a huge amount, at least I hope. And so when it comes to identity, there is what we can control and there is what we must listen to, what we must receive. There's a huge amount of wisdom built into our base brains, right? I mean, I sort of view this sort of new part of our brain like the frontal cortex prefrontal neofrontal cortex it's like i've referred to it as like the the post monkey buggy as hell beta expansion pack <laughs> you know it's just nature's <laughs> testing shit out on us all the time some of it's great and some of it sucks and i love the fact that we have this tumor of self built on top of the ape structures of ancient evolution but it's not all who we are and People will try and keep you up at the top. People will try and keep you, you know, as I say, living in your head, not in your, not in your body, not in your soul, not in the meaty muscle of your comprehensive being, what I've also called the Miko system. It's, it's, my identity is not just me. It's my mom in there. It's other people in there, people who disagree with me, people who agree with me, me disagreeing with myself. It's a whole complex ecosystem. And if we try to dominate it with our ego, we end up in this totalitarian regime 
where rebellion goes underground and shows up in psychosomatic, shows up in insomnia, show, shows up in various ailments, shows up in unhappiness, in, in, in depression, in my sort of way of, of looking at things. And so we got to get everyone at the table. Everyone at the table. The people who hated us are still part of who we are. The people who loved us, certainly part of who we are. Our self-doubt, part of who we are, and an essential part of who we are because it keeps us humble. Our sense of power, maybe even our grandiosity to reach for things which seem impossible, certainly part of who we are. But self-doubt needs to be in conversation with the mad ambition. And the confidence needs to be in conversation with the caution. Everyone gets a seat at the table in the ideal ecosystem, the identity which is an ecosystem. Who rules in an ecosystem? No one. The lion doesn't rule because if he can't get enough to eat, he dies. And when he dies, Mufasa style, he goes into the ground, feeds the grass, which is then eaten by the gazelle. Who rules? Nobody rules. It's a balance. It's a, it's a, and it's striving for balance as well. I remember that. Libra. I mean, I don't believe in any of that stuff, but I just remember when I was a kid reading, <laughs> Libra, balance. Are you kidding me? I'm up and down. <laughs> Like, no, 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 striving for balance, right? And this is the same thing with, with the personality. So when we think that we are just one thing, like we're just this one thing, like our identity is, is not part of an ecosystem. It's all just about our willpower. It's all just about what we think up top in the post-monkey beta expansion pack buggy as hell system we've got going on here. We're not fully human. In, in fact, we're likely to make significant numbers of mistakes without being guided by a deeper self, without being guided by the layers of brain is built on from single-celled organisms through lizards, amphibians, <laughs> reptiles, mammals, you name it. Everything has evolved with the goal of survival and flourishing and reproduction. And we can't just listen to the top part. And everyone wants you to live in the top part because the top part is susceptible to manipulation through language. And people who want to control you try and keep you right up at the top here, right at the top, right at the top of the speckled egg, <laughs> the speckled ostrich egg I call ahead. They try to keep you right at the top here. They try to control you through language, through manipulation, because this old language stuff, you can talk yourself in and out of stuff. But once you get down deep into the bowels of your being and you center yourself and you know that everyone gets a seat at the table, you can't be manipulated. I mean, I have my faults, but being manipulated is not one of them. And that's because you, you, you can't manipulate me because if you try and control a part of me, I won't shame that part of me. I won't put it underground. And so you can't control me because it's invisible to me. Because everyone gets a seat at my table. Everybody gets to talk to me who is within me. Even those who are my, quote, enemies get a full seat at the table. Because my inner enemies or people who are provoked by people who hate me, those identities within me, they're there to help me be protected from those crazy people, like a scar tissue. Yeah. So I remember you talking to people about like their inside dads and stuff like that. Yeah, um, they're they're yeah. there to help you. They're not there to punish you. They're there to keep you safe. Right. Like right. if you're scared of lions, if you've got an inner image of a dangerous lion, yeah. it's not there to torture you. It's there to keep you away from lions. It's there to help you. It's there to save you. Yeah. So I, I just when you were talking about you were making bad decisions, and you know, please, Brian, I'm in no way trying to explain you to you. I just wanted to use that as a talking point to, I haven't talked about this in entirely too long because politics, right? But I haven't talked about yeah. this. It's really, really important for people to understand this and internal family systems therapy as is, I've actually had the author on. It's worth, worth having a look and reading this book. Um, the Miko system is something that I think is really important. And we do need a lot of strength in the trials to come in the world. And 
we also are going to need to be beyond manipulation. You can only be manipulated if you reject significant aspects of yourself and you shame them and you call them bad and you call them enemies and you call them wrong. Everyone must get a seat at the table. And if everyone gets a seat at the table, then someone's going to try and manipulate you with, say, shame, shaming or whatever, right? But if you mm-hmm. shame, if, if your shame, your capacity for shame gets a seat at the table and somebody shames that, they've got allies, right? The Alinsky tactic is to isolate and attack. And so if you, sh- if you shame your shame and you drive it underground within your mind, within your heart, then it has no allies. And therefore it can be controlled from the outside because it hasn't, it's not part of your conversation. You know, like if, you're, if your kid is being bullied at school and doesn't tell you, then you, can't, you don't have anything to say about that bullying. You can't help that child. And therefore that child's going to get bullied more. Your child comes home and says, I'm being bullied. You sit down, you go down, you deal with it in some way or another. So everyone gets a seat at the table. Because that way you can't be controlled by outside people finding your hidden self that you don't want to admit and controlling you through the back door, controlling you through that way, manipulating you. Self-honesty, everyone getting a seat at the table within the cathedral of the self is the only way, I think, to have consistent enough moral strength to evade and avoid being manipulated. We can't be shamed if we don't shame ourselves. And if we recognize that our capacity for shame is provoked within us by people shaming us and it's designed to help keep us away from shaming people and so if you get quote shamed or somebody's trying to shame you and you say oh okay so you're the kind of predator that my inner shame wants me to stay away from so then you don't end up being in control you sorry you don't end up being controlled by the person who's shaming you because if somebody provokes an unbearable shame in you and you reject it then you're under their control because you've just announced to them you have this big button. You push this button, I'll do what you want to avoid these negative experiences. But once you've accepted that these negative experiences are there to help you and they're there to inform you and they're there to keep you safe, then you don't have any buttons that people can push. And you know, if you're out there in the public talking about challenging topics or fuck any topics for that matter, people are trying to push these buttons all the time just go to youtube comments and say, oh trying to push these buttons all the time oh steph you were mean to that woman who talked about mysticism fritz you were mean to that whore you're a terrible guy you shouldn't be verbally abusive you asshole like, oh yeah okay <laughs> i'll listen to you who can't even notice their own hypocrisy don't be verbally abusive you balding bastard <laughs> whatever it is so yeah. if you're gonna go out into the public Arena, you need to make friends with every aspect of yourself first. Hell, if you're just going to try and do anything positive in this life and in this world, you need to become friends with every aspect of yourself and recognize there are no enemies within. And if you make enemies within, if you take parts of yourself, reject, abandon, and shame them. If you make enemies within, you invite the enemies from without and give them control over you. Does that make any sense relative to your experience? Well, it, it's inviting a new kind of possibility for me here. So, like, I had a lot of these thoughts, and I basically abandoned them. And it sounds as though I should take them into consideration now if I want to invite everyone to the table. Yes, I did it in therapy, too. So I just wanted to mention that it can be a challenge to do it alone. I was in therapy for years as well. So hopefully yeah, that okay. Helps. Now, tell me All a little right. bit more about the reincarnation no, no, actually, so, so psychotic break, is this your, because that's a technical phrase, right? So is that your yeah, description that, of what yeah, happened? I, it's the easiest way for me to quickly tell people what happened, where they have somewhere, an idea where to start. Um, now, I, I was never able to really afford to have it 
really analyzed in any kind of detail. So I just call it that so that people have an understanding that it was mentally related and it was, I, I went pretty far in a certain direction. And, uh, so it's not, I'm not using it in a clinical sense. Right. Okay. Just, I wasn't sure if you had been diagnosed or whatever it is. Okay. No. And I'm not sure that I would believe it because I, it turns out there was a food allergy component as well. Uh, that, so like, but that's kind of beyond it's kind of on the side. It's not related, I think, All right. for, for this discussion. Right, okay, okay. Nature of reality beyond our own. So, when I was going through my insomnia many, many years ago now, but it was a, mm-hmm. it was a before and after in my life. 16 months, I think it was. Astonishing, astonishing, brutal. I, I am not good with being tired. Some people are. I mean, my daughter, if she doesn't get enough sleep, well, she's perfectly fine. Perf- I mean, if I don't oh, get I, enough I sleep, oof, I just I understand. Yeah, I'm just yeah, when I'm tired. Yeah, when I'm tired, like I'm with my fiance at night, and it's like at 10 p.m. I get tired, and uh, it, <laughs> and it's like no amount of like her kissing me or, or anything. Like I, it's just I'm tired and I can't function I, I totally understand yeah like some people get hangry like hungry and angry oh yeah i get slangry <laughs> which is just sleep deprived and angry i'm just slangry <laughs> yeah and i'm short-tempered and 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 i'm just i just don't enjoy I, fe- I feel like i'm just walking slow motion through like acidic cotton balls in in the air it's just not a positive experience for me and i haven't had issues with sleep for ever but during this particular time I was so disconnected with a fundamental discontent in my existence that I genuinely had no idea why I wasn't sleeping. Afterwards, it was all perfectly clear. Mm. I couldn't sleep because I was asleep. I couldn't sleep because I was not awake to what was actually happening in my life and the low, low quality of the relationships that I had and the fact that I was being exploited in, in a variety of situations and ways. I was not able to sleep because... I was not able to wake up. And it was the lack of sleep that helped me to wake up because it allowed me to, or basically cornered me into uh, getting therapy. Now I tried going to therapy before, but it wasn't until I met a great therapist that I really understood how great it could be. And I remember being so frustrated at what I felt was a very stern disapproval from my own self that I could not access directly. I had names for all these characters. <laughs> I, haven't, mm. I haven't thought of them in a while, but I could list them all yeah. for like 20 people I was having these intense conversations with during this whole period. But um, I was so frustrated. Like, what do you want from me? I'm trying to do things better. What do you want? What do you want? And they don't say. Talk- they don't say what they about- want. They don't sort of give me some scrolling marquee. I want lasers on the moon. I just tell me, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Which is the exact opposite of, you know, it's like, I gave you orders for 25 years. Now, I give up. You give me orders. And the whole point was that nobody gives anyone orders anymore. Yeah. Nobody gives anyone orders. We discuss. We talk. And and that's that was foreign to what I had understood as having itself, as having an identity. It was foreign to sit there and say, what, nobody takes orders? Well, how are we supposed to have any free will if nobody takes orders? <laughs> right? How are we supposed to have freedom without a dictator? It doesn't make any sense. And 
that it feels like you're going crazy. It feels like you're falling apart. It feels like you're breaking up, like a spaceship coming into the atmosphere too fast, just wings peeling off, windshields peeling off, tiles peeling off, the skeleton, the very steel skeletons peeling off, and it feels like you're dying. There's a, uh, and I, was, I listened to this, actually, I've just listened to this again. Again, I'm back on this nostalgia kick. It's a great song by Supertramp called Asylum. And it's about a false self and an authentic self, whether they know it or not. It's <laughs> what it's about. I believe I'm dying. He howls, the singer, the, the two singers, the baritone and the, the tenor, counter tenor almost, Roger Hodgins. And. It's about having nothing to say to people but still talking versus actually having something to say that isn't rehearsed. It's having something to say that isn't just for an effect, to, to, to appear a certain way. Oh, it really looks like rain. Do you know I nearly missed my train? You know, just saying things merely for the purpose of moving syllables around because if you don't speak, nobody will know you're alive. Nobody will know you're there. But then when you speak, you confirm that you're not there because what you say is cliched. It's rehearsed. It's for effect. It's not honest. It's not spontaneous. It's not authentic. It's not you speaking about reality and identity it's you attempting to control other people through inconsequentiality. Mm. So when you say the nature of a reality beyond our own, my question is beyond your conscious mind, beyond the part of you that was making terrible decisions, or beyond all of your mind, beyond all the way back down to the lizard brain, do you mean beyond your consciousness as a whole or beyond the part of your consciousness that was making all the bad decisions? I, I guess I was, uh, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I was perceiving, uh, I was perceiving that uh, I, I, I was on a totally different track from that. I perceived that spirits had enlisted themselves in the aid of helping me because they had taken some kind of pity on me. Uh, I'm not sure what that, how that would fit into to the framework you're setting up. Spirits had inhabited you because they wanted to take pity on you? No, they had enlisted themselves in the service of helping me achieve my goals. So uh, they were just, they were outside of me and they were helping me get things done that I wanted to do. Right. Now, outside of you, if you take your conscious mind and associate that with your whole body then you have your conscious mind and you have your body, right? Therefore, uh-huh. anything else must be outside of you. But if your conscious uh-huh. mind is extended and expanded to include all the parts of your brain, and, and by this I also mean your second brain, like your gut. You know, we have yeah. a very complex system down in there. You mentioned uh, f- uh, food allergies before. Yeah, I, I found access to that actually uh, meditating. Years later, I, I kind of became aware of a gut, like an aware, like I, I know what you mean by the gut. We have a gut feeling. We have a gut sense. It's very real. This is not made up. Yeah. This is not a fantasy. This is a second brain that we have down there. Yeah. You know, this, this idea of reincarnation, of course we've all lived before. I mean, of course we have. Our DNA didn't arise with us. 
It's been kicking around for billions of years developing. We only have all of our DNA because it's all lived before. And I don't just mean like the star stuff that we're made of. I mean, everything that we are has been assembled over billions and billions of years. Of, co- of course, we have a sense of having, been, have, having lived before. I mean, every night we go to bed, we close our eyes, and we dream of the most fantastic and astounding stuff. This the is night, reminding the night me after of... the French election, I had a terrible dream. The night after the French election, I had a terrible dream that I was watching a woman who'd been captured and tortured. And people were slashing at her face as she was tied to a chair. And she had been tortured for so long, they had actually sawn off her arms. She, she only had shoulders, no arms. And she was trying to chat in a positive and pleasant way to her torturers. She had normalized it that much. A terrible dream. Huh. Disarmed, right? It's not even that complicated to figure out. Right, right, right. But it was, it was terrible. And it happens, you know, I mean, the world has its impact on my deepest self, as I hope my deepest self has an impact on the world. It's a conversation. But it shows just how deeply we listen. You analyze in your head, but everything falls like gems down a bottomless well. Everything falls into our deep self as well. Yeah. And so, so the idea that we have lived before, of course we have. Of course we have. Because everything we are has been assembled over about a million generations. More. A billion generations. Everything we are has been assembled by an accumulation of prior lives. So, of course, I did not invent my unconscious. I did not invent my liver, my spleen, my spine, my eyelashes. They have all been assembled over a billion, a billion plus generations. And so this idea of eternal recurrence that we've been there before, that is... Um, of course, it would be crazy to never have that idea or to feel it vividly. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It really reminds me of uh, like how Jordan Peterson has been, I've been watching his videos and how he kind of looks at the symbols of, of Christianity and he kind of, he, he ties them to, uh, you know, evolution and evolutionary psychology in a way that I'm like, wow, like, uh, that's really awesome. Like, and it, this is reminding me of that, uh, and it's, uh, it's. I think you just made some like some art for me to think about for a while. Well, and it is so hard to be deeply human because there's so much profit in us being shallow. Yeah. Can you imagine the average teacher in junior high school trying to teach self-actualized children, <laughs> children who have well, deep and empathetic understanding of humanity can you imagine trying to impose dumb rules can you imagine trying to teach them inconsequential things can you imagine trying to bully and control them i I sometimes feel like that's what happened to me actually i feel like i started out k-selected and became r-selected through this torturous process that i had to go crazy to get out of it and then i reassembled myself on the other side and now i'm k-selected again and uh and uh but I have a lot of time wasted in the meanwhile. Right. Right. The, the question of wasted time is a big one. 
I mean, you, you, we can always look back and say, oh, well, I should have done this sooner, I should have done that sooner. And I don't mean that we should never look back and criticize our choices or our path. But when it comes to being authentic, Brian, I mean, when it comes to being honest, when it comes to being a full human being, we're so slashed and detonated and crippled early on in our life that even to reassemble ourselves into any patchwork golem of basic humanity is a miraculous feat. It's like yeah, you have to, sure. you know, there are all these quests, one of these quests in these games or in these stories. This treasure has been broken up and scattered to the four corners of the earth, and you must go with your NPCs to pick up these treasures and reassemble them for the thing of ultimate power. But this is us. Yeah. This is our, our aspects, our humanity, our complexity, our depth, our honesty, our integrity, our positive self-relationship. And it, you know, if, you're, if you're a good parent and you weren't parented well, it's a hell of a thing to see. It's a hell of a thing to see. My daughter is not fractious with herself. She criticizes herself. She says, I could have done this better. But there's no... It's a course correction. It's not self-punishment. And... It's fantastic to see that. Mm. And now that she has it, it's going to be hard, if not impossible, to break. But I think so many of yeah. us, smashed up so early, scattered to the four winds, disassembled, disempowered, disemboweled. And then we say, well, you know, I wasted a lot of time going to the four corners of the earth to resurrect the treasure mm. called identity. That's a good point. But I blame the people who scattered us, not... The journeys we had to do to collect. Yeah, and actually, I've derived a lot of meaning from my journey, and it, it, it's really a, a kind of a treasure that I—it's it, hard to share because it, it's hard for other people to connect to it. But uh, yeah, I've had lots of struggles in overcoming them. I, I really value it, even though I hated it at the time. Right, and the civilization called identity. What is our choice? We are shredded like. Basic cheese on a crater. It's a terrible analogy, but it's one that popped into my mind. You know, we're talking about identity and depth, and I'm talking about gorgonzola, which makes you cry. But At least it um, tastes good. We, we are. We're, we're, we're broken up because a monopoly of identity would destroy the monopoly of power in the world. I mean, if we genuinely did not self-attack, if we genuinely had the empathy that was necessary to help others, if we genuinely had the conscience and integrity to reject coercion in all of its forms, if we were whole, if we were complete, if we, if we were without desperate need, without desperate self-avoidance, if we did not need to latch onto the state as a substitute parent or a substitute husband to try and gain the fruits of love, which are resources, without actually having to go through the pain of not having been loved or having been hated, maybe even as children, if we had wholeness, if we had contentedness, if we had a true and deep self, where would the power mongers be able to get their hooks in? We had the armor of identity. We would not be vulnerable to the torture of control and rejection and blame and savagery and attack, ostracism. We are created needy as babies. The needs are supposed to be satisfied 
so that we can enter adulthood free of the need to manipulate, to try and find a way to avoid the pain of not having gotten what we needed as children by pretending we can somehow manipulate people into giving it in the present. And if we are satisfied as infants and we grow up with no need for the unearned, everything a baby and a toddler gets should be unearned, of course. They don't have to work for their daily bread. If our needs are... That's why I say to people, stay home. Stay home with your children. Breastfeed your children. Hold your children. Love your children. Cuddle your children. Be friends with your children. Be on an authority, of course. They're children. But if if kids get what they want, what they need, what they deserve, they don't enter adulthood with giant holes in their heart that they have to do an endless dance of attack and manipulation to pretend they can fill. If we grow up with no need for the unearned, with no need for the unjust, with no need to grab at resources as a substitute for being loved in the way that a drowning man grabs at a barrel with no sense of rhyme or reason and doesn't care if he breaks his fingernails or claws someone's arm off, he just wants to survive. If we grow up without desperation to cover up the mutilations of our early histories, we can't be manipulated then. We can't have free stuff dangled in front of us. The single mother state, welfare, these are substitutes for love, substitutes for intimacy, substitutes for connection. And they just make things worse, of course, right? Substitutes don't, don't work. There is no substitute for love. There is no substitute for respect. There is no substitute for virtue. Often imitated, never duplicated. And if we grow up having had our needs satisfied, then as an adult, we will not look to other people to pretend to love us by giving us the unjust fruits of stolen labor. We will have eaten our fill as children. We will not need to cannibalize as adults. And this is why the state is founded upon the withdrawal or the withholding of things from children. Creates in us this need to substitute injustice for an early lack of love. It makes us greedy. It makes us addicted, dependent. And because we can't be honest about it, it makes us manipulative. And that's what we call political correctness. So I think you experienced some very real things, Brian. I don't think that they were outside of your mind. I think that uh, you should expand your mind to include everything that you thought was coming in from outside, that Mm. it was coming from inside. And I think that gives you a sense of your own scope that is more powerful than imagining it was outside. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Okay, I'm going to move on to my last caller, if that's all right. I appreciate the call, though, and and thanks very much for bringing this topic up. For sure, Steph. Have a good night, man. Take care. Okay, up next we have another Brian. Brian number two wrote in and said, Morality as I understand it, and as you seem to understand it as well, as best I can tell, is a matter of what one ought to do. You propose the concept of universally preferable behavior as the solution to the ought question of morality. If UPB does, in fact, exist, and I have no objection to its existence, 
Why, though, ought I behave in a certain way simply because it is universally preferable? Isn't a universal preference still simply that, merely a preference? That's from Brian. Whoa, hey, Brian, how you doing tonight? Hi, Stefan. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am very well, thank you. I'm very well, and I appreciate the question. It's a very good question. Hopefully, uh, the answer will match the quality of the question. Let's keep our fingers crossed, shall we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, um, and not not to imply that my question was unclear. I, I hope that it was, but I guess just to further clarify, I'm trying to trying to understand how um, universally preferable behavior gets around the Humean problem of you know deriving an is from an ought from an ought from an is i don't i don't quite see how that how it gets around that do you think it's wrong to get an ought from an is yeah i don't think it's possible then you just got an ought from an is which is an ought not you ought not get an ought from an is well it's not a matter of ought it's just that i don't think that it follows i don't think that the ought no, but follows it's incorrect from sorry to interrupt it's incorrect to get an ought from an is right well, yes, it doesn't follow. Okay. So then anyone who tries to get an ought from an is is wrong, and they ought not do that. Sure. <laughs> so we just got an ought from an is or an is not, right? Now, I agree with you that because there's universally preferable behavior, you you can, of course, choose to not follow that, right? Right. And there's nothing in physics that will punish you you know like if if i think i can walk off a cliff and i'm not fred flintstone then i'm going to have a bad time of it immediately right so that kind of error is is punished by by pain if i think i can go and hug a baby grizzly with his mommy bear around i'm going to find myself short of one scalp and possibly my head relatively quickly right so there but there's nothing in nature that will punish you for, for for not following morality, right? And and this basic reality that there's nothing in nature that punishes you for not following reality is one reason why hell was invented, right? Because we would like to have something in reality that punishes people for evil doing, right? But there is nothing. In in fact, in biology, one is often rewarded for not following universally preferable behavior. One is often rewarded. In terms of resources, uh, in terms of access to reproduction, uh, Genghis Khan, crazy, psychotic mass murderer, <laughs> and is responsible for what? One out of 19 current people living in that region of the world? I mean, sure. the guy was basically a, <laughs> he was a toad in heat, a spraying baby all over the place, right? So this frustration that if we defy the laws of physics or attempt to, we are punished by pain or demise or injury or whatever. But if we do not follow moral rules, not only are we not punished, but biologically, we are sometimes uh, rewarded. Like, it's easier for the jackal to steal some of the lion's kill than to chase down the gazelle himself, or the zebra, or whoever, right? It's theft, yes, but it's very, um, it's rewarded, right? So, and I know jackals sometimes hunt for themselves and so on, but whatever, there are sort of uh, scavengers of, of that kind. 
So I'd certainly agree with you that there's nothing that compels us to follow, uh, to follow morality from that standpoint at all. And it's similar to science, right? So, so you don't have to follow science if you want to try and find out something true about the world. You can pursue Chopra-style deepities, right? You can listen to mystics on this show try to explain themselves. You can use a Ouija board. You can go to theology. You can go to fortune cookies. You can go to a whole bunch of things. Meditate and get inspiration from Krishna. There's nothing that compels you to follow the scientific method if you want to find out true things about the world. It's just that you won't end up finding true things out about the world. Because the, the whole point of scientific, the scientific method is we have confirmation bias, we have subjectivity, we have conflicting interests, we have, uh, you know, we may profit from a, one particular outcome versus another outcome. We may be going against social norms, like if people say the Earth is the center of the universe or the solar system, we find out it's not. We may be punished for speaking out against these things. And so we, we need science because we are fallible, frail-minded error-prone meat puppets. And so we need an objective methodology to be able to separate what we believe, uh, sorry, to be able to unite what we believe with what is actually empirically testable and and true. So uh, why ought you behave a certain way simply because it is uh, universally preferable? Well, I don't believe that that, for most human beings, once you convince them that something is true, they generally are drawn to it. We are confirmation bias robots. And if the confirmation bias actually happens to be true, so much the better. And um, we know this. I mean, look, I mean, just look, look at Europe, where, where anybody who's skeptical about endless waves of migrants coming in is called racist. And racist is really bad, you see. It's terrible. It's a nasty, naughty, terrible, you know, worse, worse than anything. And so because of that, it, it happens. It, it goes on and on. With Sweden and France and Germany. Racist. Terrible. Can't be racist. So we'll take all these risks and we'll put up with all of this crime and assaults and welfare roles and because, right? So I don't, you know, if, if you want to say, well, I don't want to follow universally preferable behavior, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not going to, I'll try and convince you of doing the right thing. But if you don't want to follow science. I'm not going to run around the world and nag you to follow science. I just know that whatever other thing you're doing is not going to lead you to a, um, a place of truth. Now, you don't have to follow universally preferable behavior, of course. Of course. But I know that you won't be able to consistently be good, to be virtuous, to live with integrity. Because integrity requires consistency, right? It's no, no integrity to say, do this thing and it's virtuous one day and then do the opposite of that thing and it's also virtuous that's not integrity that's just conformity to random commandments right to have integrity you need consistency you need universality and so you don't have to follow universally preferable behavior you don't have to follow science if you don't follow science you won't know the truth and if you don't follow universally preferable behavior you won't know virtue and you won't have any capacity for integrity and if you say well i don't care about virtue and integrity it's like okay well then, then go live your life, right? <laughs> I'm going to convince everyone else. And, and if lots of people believe me or accept my arguments and you don't, then you're going to start to be ostracized pretty quickly. So, you know, but whereas if I don't convince anyone that I've wasted my time and I guess uh, <laughs> you are doing your thing. So 
it is not um, it is not a commandment. It is not physics. There's no punishment for not following it. Uh, although, of course, if enough people believe it, then there will be social punishments, like ostracism. Like if you if you advocate slavery these days in the Western world, assuming you're not currently running the newly emerging slave trade in Libya from the migrants, if you in the, in a public sphere or a public space openly espouse virulent racism, if you openly um, want to receive a return to slavery or whatever it is, right? Well, you will be punished in the social sphere because enough people accept these are immoral things to advocate and definitely immoral things in practice. And so my goal is to convince enough people about the validity of universally preferable behavior to the point where if enough people accept and understand it, then those who reject it will be revealed as people who don't really care that much about ethics, who don't really care that much about virtue, and therefore are dangerous. I'm not speaking of you. I'm sort of in society as a whole. And therefore are dangerous people with no conscience, uh, and the inevitable result will be ostracism. And that is, of course, how social rules should be enforced, and moral rules should be enforced through ostracism. But ostracism requires a general acceptance of a set of moral rules that people understand the importance of and are willing to ostracize based on those. Right. Um, I, I guess what I was trying to address is not so much ought in a social sense, right? You're talking about social consequences for actions, obviously. So th- those exist regardless. Um, but I, I guess what I was trying to address is uh, the, the concept of what you ought to do in some sort of ultimate sense, like an objectively true uh, morality. Um, and I just, I don't, I, I, I'm, I, I'm still lost on how universally preferable behavior is necessarily what's good. It's necessarily what I ought to do simply because it's universally preferable. Like, well, I understand, so hang on, hang on I, a sec. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make sure I understand. Is it universally preferable behavior as a whole? Or is it universally preferable behavior with regards to morality? Um, yeah, I guess with regard to morality, with regards to um, the concept of that there's something that in an, in an ultimate sense, re- regardless of social consequences, right, regardless of social consequences, that there, is, that there are things that they are intrinsically right or intrinsically wrong to do. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at, because universal... Preferability, yes, I, I, I'm not contesting that that exists. I just, I don't see how that alone can ground my idea of what is, what is, what is good or what is bad or what is right or what is wrong or what I ought or ought not to do. You know, I, th- you I mean, I, th- I think we're dangerously close to be having to read the book, so I'll just try one more time because I, you know, people always call in, and it's not you in particular, Brian. It's just kind of an annoyance of mine that people call in about universally preferable behavior. Say, I've read the book. And then they ask questions that are completely answered in the book. So I don't know, but I'll, I'll give it a run. And if we don't have much luck, we don't have much luck. But, but you know, people should just go, go read the book. And, and look, if there's, if there's issues in the book, like people say, oh, well, this paragraph, and we've had people call in and say, this paragraph, I can't follow this, or this syllogism, I think, is incomplete or whatever. Great, we'll talk about that. But when I write a book called Universally Preferable Behavior, and then people come in and say, well, I don't, you know, accept universally preferable behavior, it's like, well, you have to come up with something specific in the book that you think is incorrect, in which case we can talk about that. But just basically having me read the book again doesn't really do much good. So I'll take a run at this one, though, and we'll see if we have have any luck. But just for those in the future, you know, 
The book is free. Uh, I, I spent a long time thinking about it, decades thinking about it. I spent a long time writing it. It is free. And so asking me to come in and explain the book to you is not really very productive. Not a very, I wrote the book, so I wouldn't have to do this. But anyway, I'll, I'll give it a shot here because it's been a while. But um, okay, so uh, human beings have the capacity to take against the will of other human beings their stuff, right? I can steal your wallet, right? Yes. Okay. So that is a behavior. It's not a thought. I can think about stealing your wallet, but that's not the crime, right? Outside of modern academia, there's no thought crime, right? So it is the behavior that we are concerned about, right? Right, yes. Now, there are some behaviors which all human beings can achieve at the same time. All human beings can not rape each other at the same time, right? That, that is achievable within empirical reality, right? Absolutely, yes. Right. Now, the question then becomes, is it possible for two people to rape each other at the same time? No, that's, that's always, you know, because people then, oh, rape. And, let's just talk about stealing. Is it possible for two people to steal from each other at the same time? Not the same thing, but theoretically, I would say yes. Yeah, two people could pick each other's pocket at the same time, right? Right. Okay. Right. Now, is it possible for the act of stealing to be universally preferable? In other words, can we have a, a rule that says, like, we can have a rule that says nobody should steal, and that rule can be universalized, right? Because people Mm. can exist in a state of not stealing from each other. All over the world, we could have an entire situation where nobody's stealing from each other, right? Sure. Okay, so thou shalt not steal can be universalized, right? Sure. Can thou shalt steal or stealing is universally preferable behavior, can that principle be universalized? I'm not entirely sure that it couldn't, but I think it's unlikely. It can't. Because okay. you're thinking about the actions, and I'm thinking right. about the what, what stealing means. So stealing is me taking your wallet against your preference, right? True. Okay, I see, I see what you're saying. Yes. No. Yeah, yes. So, so I, just for those who aren't following, so if Brian says stealing is universally preferable, then he wants me to steal from him. Because it's universally preferable. And he, he wants to steal from me, and I want to steal from him, and he wants me to steal from like, Everybody wants everyone to steal. Right. So Brian wants me to take his wallet. But if Brian wants me to take his wallet, it's not stealing. So stealing can only occur as a principle if it's not universalized. Exactly. Right? So if I say, Brian, feel free to use my car for the weekend. I'm going to leave the, the key someplace, Right. You can get the key. Then that's not you're not stealing. However, if you take my key from exactly the same place, your neighbor overhears this and uses my car for the whole he's stealing, right? Because I said to you, yes, I did not say yes to him, right? So mm-hmm. when it comes to property, respect for property rights is the only principle that can be universalized. Because it is impossible to universalize a disrespect for property rights. It is impossible. Logically, I mean, not physically, it's logically self-contradictory. And it's the same thing with rape, right? If, if somebody wants you to make love to that person, if somebody wants you to have sexual relations with that, it's not rape. It's only rape if they don't want it. 
really don't want it, right? Really, really don't want it. And so if we say rape is universally blah, 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 right, then it can't be enacted because it has to not, same thing with assault, right? If you and I go into a boxing ring, we're both consenting to be injured, right? The potential for injury, right? So it's not assault. But we can't have, assault is something you, you desperately don't want, right? It's not assault if you go to the dentist and they fix your cavity, even if it's painful, right? Right. And so when it comes to certain interactions with human beings, the principle of theft, stealing is universally preferable behavior, is false because it cannot manifest as universally preferable behavior. Because theft requires one people wants the transfer of property and the other people doesn't. Don't, right? Sure. So when it comes to what is universally preferable behavior in terms of property rights, a respect for property rights is universal, universally preferable behavior. And stealing is not, and murder is not, and rape is not, and theft is assault is not. Right? Assault is not. Now, you can say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Sure. And, and you can, and there's no UPB god that's going to hit you with a thunderbolt if you do that. And I'm not concerned about the actors. I'm concerned about the theory. I'm concerned about the justification. I'm concerned about the morality of it. The individual actors, to me, are not important. And I'll tell you why. Because it is the theft that people think is justified that is the great danger in society. I can protect myself against an individual thief, right? I can have a security system. I can have a guard. I can have cameras everywhere. I can have triple locks, like whatever. I can move to some very safe... I can do things to protect myself against the thief that everyone knows is wrong and everyone knows should be arrested and put in jail and whose crime everyone recognizes. I'm not worried about the individual thief. What I am worried about, Brian, very worried about, is the theft that everyone thinks is a virtue. Right? The, the taxation, the, the national debt, the, the status controls and manipulations and regulations and all of this initiation of the use of force, the war on drugs, the war on you name it, right? Foreign policy, migrant policy, um, refugee policy, welfare state. Like, that is the stuff that I cannot protect myself against. There's no place in the world where you can go to be free of that stuff. And people right. will cheer if you disagree with that stuff and act on it, which I don't recommend, but if you do, People will say, well, that guy didn't pay his taxes. He should go to jail. So, you know, as far as individual people who deviate from a moral standard that people generally accept, I don't care. Unimportant. Totally easy to protect yourself against individuals like that. The problem is all the people who say, well, we need to violate property because kids need to be educated and the sick need to get medicine and the poor need to be raised up and the illiterate need to be educated and the drug addicts need to be thrown in prison. All those people who are mistaking a vice for a virtue, that's the people that UPB is supposed to target. The individual actor, I don't care. They're no particular danger to me or my child, or the future, or Western civilization, or any civilization. The problem is all the people who think that violations of UPB are wonderful, and conformity to UPB is evil. Those are the people 
that are the great danger to the world. And these are the people that the book, UPB, is supposed to help illuminate and switch on the light. Once people see what evil is, they recall from it, as I talked about earlier with the, you know, if I give you a plate of, looks like jello and you're about to eat it and someone says, no, 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 that's a jellyfish. <laughs> you won't eat it, right? Because you've now identified what it is. So as far as individual actors and their deviation from morality, I could care less. What matters to me is entire societies that think that good is evil and evil is good. Right. Um, that that makes sense. Um, I think I'm following you. And and you know just just to clarify, I actually I, I did read through UPB. Um, I, I haven't come into this conversation completely ignorant of the book. I made sure to download the book and and read through the arguments in it. Um, if I may be a little bit unclear on something, still I hope you'll at least forgive that. Um, but uh, but I, I have I have read through the book in an attempt to understand exactly what you meant by you know universal the preferable behavior, and I I think I grasp it for the most part. Um, I, I just I I really I'm trying to trying to make this as, as um, clear as possible. Trying to figure out how to articulate um, my exact issue here. Um, I, I still don't see how this brings us to an objective ought because all of this has to do with preferability and with social consequences and with that sort of thing but in in an in an ultimate sense like in an ultimate absolute objective sense i don't i just don't see how that is it maybe that's okay, not but compared to what brian what is an ought that you're comparing this to because that i don't understand so you saying it's falling short of this ought which sounds suspiciously to me like divine punishment but anyway what right. human system of thought are you comparing it to to find woefully lacking that's what i, I want to know what the yardstick is here well, I suppose um, I, I suppose it wouldn't be inaccurate to say that I'm coming close to something something at least religious. I don't know about divine punishment per se. I don't know that that's particularly okay, relevant. Okay, because but. if you're going to compare a human system of philosophy to omniscience and omnipotence, I got to tell you that may not be the fairest comparison. <laughs> Steph, you're not God. That's my criticism of your philosophy. It's like I, I think I will accept that criticism. Um, <laughs> Well, maybe not on my fourth coffee, but I will accept that criticism on the condition that it's insane, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you can't compare a human system of philosophy to omnipotence, omniscience, heaven and hell and divine commandments and miracles and, and, and loaves and fishes and walking on water. It's like, it's, it's true. I could say, well, Usain Bolt, really, really fast runner, still not the speed of light. Right. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't know. That's quite exactly what I, what I'm trying to get at. Um, okay, then just tell just, me. Tell me the system of thought that you right. find more comprehensive and universal and orty well, than than well, UVB. I, well, you, you see, I don't even. I don't even necessarily take issue with the concept of universally preferable behavior. Like I like I mentioned in my my email or my my question. Um, I think I think there is universally preferable behavior, but I think it, it need, I think there has to be some sort of foundation other than that and i i know find a you know listen i'll tell you what you want oh man i'm telling you what you want what you want is someone else to do the punishing other than you 
You don't want to have the confrontation of punishing people personally who are not fulfilling moral obligations or are not understanding. Everybody wants to outsource everything else, right? And I'm, I'm sorry to rip on you, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'm telling you this is what I think. You want there to be a system out there where morality is enforced, where you don't have to do it. You want God or something out there to, to, to punish the guilty and to reward the innocent so that you don't have to have the difficult conversations and ostracize the living hell out of people who are not following basic morality. You want there to be a universe out there that takes the effort and impetus and necessary requirements of you acting as a moral agent in this world. You want to outsource it and offload it. In the same way, people are like, well, I don't really want to help the poor, so let's have a welfare state. Well, you know, I'm concerned about the sick. Ah." Or like these people in in, in France, they say, uh, a reporter comes up and says, oh, do you think we should have more more uh, immigrants, more migrants coming? Oh, yes, it's inhumane, it's nice, it's, we should be hospitable. We should, oh, good, I have a migrant right here. Uh, he would like to come with you to your house tonight. Well, no, I cannot tonight, right? Everybody wants this abstract thing, like somehow morality is going to be enforced like like physics or like the punishment of a divine being or something. no. It comes down to you, Brian. It comes down to you saying to people, hey, this is right, this is good, this is the truth. What do you think? Give them some time to absorb it, some time to digest it, some time to argue back and, you know, go back and forth. But if at some point, you know, it doesn't take long to figure out the theft one, you and I did it in about two and a half minutes. At some point, the physics that is going to enforce morality is you, (laughs) It's you. You can't offload it. I mean, you can, but there's nothing there to take it. There's no God that's going to punish the guilty and reward the innocent. There's no physics that's going to strike people down with ailments, you know? Assholes live to be 100 and good people die like dogs at 30 sometimes, right? Nature doesn't care. Physics don't particularly care. I wrote a poem 32 years ago, and it went like this. (laughs) Are you ready? It's a piece of poetic genius. It goes like this. Two men in a wood, one bad one good, are both eaten by wolves. (laughs) Because you taste the same, whether you're good or bad, to a wolf. Your virtue doesn't make you taste bad, and your vice doesn't make you taste bad. You just flesh with with morals, and the morals don't affect your ending if you're trapped, eaten in a wood Liam Neeson style. So you want something out there to be able to enforce moral standards that isn't you, and I understand that. It's not fun to do. But if it's not you, it's no one. Well, I'm not sure that that's quite fair or accurate. Um, I don't think that I um, am attempting to outsource my personal responsibility for living and acting in a, a morally uh, correct way. I, I don't. That I'm absolutely. I think that individuals are completely responsible for enforcing that and for enforcing that with themselves and with society as a whole. I, I would. I would agree with you on that. Absolutely. Good. And then let um, me ask you this question, Brian. Since yeah. you read the book. How many people have you talked to about morality? I talk to people about morality all the time. Actually, that's that's one of my main concerns in life. I try to talk to people about it. And it okay, it and what are the consequences? And me, sorry, what do um, you define as a moral rule or a a moral standard that would cause you to ostracize somebody who rejected it? What is it? What are these moral standards for you? In terms of particular, like specifics, like um, "thou shalt not kill" or "thou shalt not steal," something like that, is that what you're referring to? Or? Yeah. So, so I mean, my my particular one is if somebody is aggressive towards their children, no, no, no place in my life. I'll talk to them, I'll attempt to change their mind, but if yeah, absolutely, you know, and and people who are you know out and out status, like they just want the government to run everything, or you know, people who think I'm immediately going to hell for not believing in their particular theology and so on, 
have no place in my life, right? So I ostracize the people uh, in my life who, because I know there's no divine agency out there and there's no physics that's going to punish wrongdoers, so it has to be me. So if you do ostracize people for not following moral rules, then my thesis is false, which is perfectly happy to accept. I mean, it was just a hypothesis. But if you generally talk about morality without enforcing it, then my thesis is true, that you want someone else to do it. Oh, no, I absolutely, um, yeah, I, I think most everyone would ostracize people that they see as acting immorally, especially in a way that's particularly detrimental. Um, okay, so give me an example of a relationship, and you don't have to, I'm just asking for, for my own curiosity. Give me an example of a relationship that you've ended because of a moral disagreement. And not an acquaintanceship, um, but, you know, something where you've got some meat on the bones. Right, right. Um, well, I, I've met quite a few people that throughout my life that I've had to do that with, or just, or even not even necessarily people close to me, because most people that I, I would associate with closely, I've already kind of vetted, you know? Um, well, you, would, except for the families we were born into, which tragically right. there's no vetting well, well, taking yes. place. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm having a hard time drawing a specific example, but but in general, yes. With when it comes to people, if I meet someone, no, I come on. If you had a specific example, you would remember it. Nobody forgets that stuff because it's very difficult. I, I, I suppose I don't have a specific example of someone close to me that I've had to ostracize for that reason. And do you understand? This doesn't prove my thesis, but it certainly supports it. Which is that if, and I'm not saying you've got to go and pick fights and break up with everyone in your life, but if you are actually enforcing moral standards in your own life then you don't have to call up people on the internet and ask how moral standards get enforced. You understand? Because you're doing it. You know how, you, and you can then encourage other people to do it. And the more people who do it, the better the world will become. But morality is like nutrition. You can read all the nutrition books you want, and you can talk about all the nutritional concepts that you want, but if you don't change your diet, it doesn't mean anything in terms of your health. You know, if you, oh, you should never eat at this restaurant and you keep eating at this restaurant. I mean, the words don't matter, your actions do. And so if you talk a lot about nutrition without changing your diet and then say, well, who on earth could enforce nutrition? It's like, well, if you're not willing to, then then no one, right? I mean, so we are all responsible, for those of us who understand ethics, those of us who understand morality, those of us who've read or written UPB, we are all responsible for the enforcement of morality in our own personal lives and in our professional lives and, and everywhere we can possibly bring it to bear. And if you are actively and actually doing that, then it won't make any, like the question then becomes kind of incomprehensible. Well, why should people follow morality? Well, who does enforce morality and so on? Because you're already doing it, right? Who, who should follow morality? Well, people who want to be your friend, people who want love and respect and all these good things in life, people who want to have integrity and, and peace of mind, people who want to experience the positive taste of courage in their mouth, which sometimes tastes like pennies and blood and sometimes tastes like a glorious God-given ambrosia. But if you're actually out there enforcing moral standards in your own life uh, in a you know peaceful ostracism-style way, then this fog about, well, why should people obey morality and, and who enforces morality? And it's like, you, you, you won't need to ask that question because you're doing it, and through doing it, you're inspiring other people to do it, and that's how it spreads, and no other way. Hmm. 
Well, I think I've given you some stuff to think on. And, you know, maybe I'm completely wrong. But uh, if you can think of uh, something, just just let us know. But I'm going to close the show off for tonight. Thank you, everyone, so, so much for listening and for watching. I guess if you're watching this on YouTube, please, please, please like, subscribe and share. What is this? I read this pretty funny thing the other night. I think it was on Twitter. Um, <laughs> somebody said that the toddler, had was someone's toddler was going to bed and said, um, and don't forget to subscribe. Because they they watched so much YouTube, they thought that meant goodbye. Because <laughs> that's what most people say at the end of the week. Don't forget to subscribe. But yeah, like, subscribe, and share. Please, please, please help us out. Down a little bit from last month from donations at freedomainradio.com slash donate. You know. You know. Deep in your heart of hearts. Deep in the giant, generous caverns of your identity that there's no other show out there like this. There's no other show that tackles these kinds of topics, which is much depth and intelligence and humanity. Please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com. Put your money where your heart and your mind is. We really, really need your help. Really, really appreciate it. freedomainradio.com slash donate. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. You can use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Thanks, everyone, so much. Happy stuff. A wonderful, wonderful night. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>